This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 41, The Three Treasures. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. And I'm Daniel DeManna. Yes, thanks for coming, Daniel. It's a big surprise, everybody. I'm glad to have you on here, Daniel, to discuss and the, your take on Kaiju Vision's latest and longest film covered. <laughs> and you can read his incredible writings on GodzillaNovelizationProject.wordpress.com. He is novelizing every Japanese Godzilla movie and in, in his own way, and what a giant project it is. We uh, talked with him in an interview uh, that was uh, in G-Fest this year, and it uh, was a fantastic interview with you. Well, thank thank you very much, Brian. I had an absolute blast with that interview. It's the biggest exposure that my project's gotten so far, and your continued support just means the world. And I am so, so happy to get the chance to come on and talk about this movie, which people, you know, it's it's not a very well-known film in America. Kaiju fans know about it, um, even if they haven't seen it before. So it's a great opportunity to talk about a really magnificent movie that I think more people should know about. Yes, in this episode, we will be covering the 1959 film, The Three Treasures, uh, or Nippon Tanjo, which is literally translated to The Birth of Japan. And it is the first religious epic covered on Kaiju Vision. And our related topic for this episode is Shinto. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's signature way to present the film without doing a long, boring summary that you can find on a wiki site. <laughs> You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In the 2nd century CE, Prince Yamato Takeru, literal meaning is bravest of the Yamato, first known as Prince Osu, is a legendary, brave, and passionate warrior. His drive is to live exactly this way, defending the Japanese nation by defeating its enemies. A cornerstone of his existence is to be loved by his father, Emperor Keiko, who he deeply respects. The Emperor is afraid of Prince Yamato because of his impulsive behavior and his temper. Despite his reputation as a merciless and often underhanded brute, the Prince is honorable towards women and is not as bad as people say. His willingness to keep fighting while weakened and his death at the hands of rivals, also Yamato, for the throne, makes him a tragic figure. Oto Tachibana is a shrine maiden from the shrine at Ise, who acts as the love interest for the prince. She puts love for him higher than her vow to serve the gods. Otomo, a vassal to the emperor, is a deceitful and conniving person who wants to stop Prince Yamato from becoming the next emperor, preferring Prince Wakatarashi instead. Suzano no Mikoto is a mythical god of the storms and the sea. He is powerful, restless, and at times he's a mischievous trickster. He has somewhat of a sibling rivalry with his sister Amaterasu Omikami, goddess of the sun and the universe, and the most gorgeous of them all. Yamata no Orichi is a merciless 300-meter-tall, eight-headed, eight-tailed dragon-slash-serpent. 
Kushinarihime is Yamata no Orochi's latest intended victim, who Suzano intends to save. The two stories remain separate from each other, but the smaller mythical storyline gives context to the larger legendary storyline. Though the stories don't directly connect because they take place in different times, the story draws similarities and differences between Prince Yamato and Suzano. The Kusanagi no Tsuruki sword is the object that connects the two stories. Suzano extracts it from Yamata no Orochi, and Prince Yamato uses it. Yamato Takeru is the issue at hand. Otomo devises a plan to have the prince killed in battle. First, the prince is sent off to Kumaso to defeat the Kumaso brothers, but he survives. Then he is sent to the east near Mount Fuji to suppress an Ainu warlord who is disobeying the emperor. Conspiring with Otomo, the warlord's forces set fire to the grassland in order to burn him, but he is saved by the Kusanogi no Tsurugi sword and a flintstone inside a bag given to him by his aunt, Princess Yamato. The issue is put to rest when the prince returns to the Yamato and he is ambushed by a large number of troops who succeed in assassinating him. The screenplay by Ryuzo Kikushima and Toshio Yasumi is a religious epic with many characters and subplots. The parts of the movie about the founding of Japan are a combination of the telling of the beginning of the world from a Shinto perspective, containing myths and oral history written out in the two oldest records of Japanese history, the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. The rest of the story is the retelling of the legendary tale of Prince Yamato Takeru. The film had a budget of 250 million yen, or about 4.7 million present-day dollars. Overall production values are high for the time in which they were made. The music by Akira Ikufube is one of his biggest and best, and includes choral music. The melody in the main theme is particularly grand. The cast included virtually all actors at Toho and many extras. Numerous outdoor and indoor sets were constructed, as well as miniatures and matte paintings. The special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya and included animation, superimposition, pyrotechnics, atmospheric effects, and puppets, including the kaiju Yamata no Orochi. Like many religious epics, there appears to be a significant costume budget. It is filmed in Tohoscope and has stereophonic sound. The film has a moderately serious tone throughout, with some light moments adding variety. The events of the film have sufficient level of gravity, and often a lot of gravity due to the grand scale of the story. While it has many elements common in fantasy films, it's a mythological and legendary religious epic film. While this is the longest film with the kaiju in it, the film is not experimental as much as it does a great job with every tool available. The film reinforces the style of the tokusatsu films done up to 1959, it reinforces the style of Hiroshi Inagaki's Samurai Trilogy and the style of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments with its focus on religion, epic scale, and grand storytelling. In fact, the film was made as a direct response to The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, which was released in 1956. It was meant to be just as big of a religious epic as DeMille's, only for Shinto instead of Christianity. It's meant for a general audience, but it is also a tokusatsu and kaiju film, so it appeals to that smaller audience too. The film was successful, grossing 344 million yen, or $6.4 million in Japan, and was Toho's best performing film for 1959. It was also the second highest grossing film in Japan in 1959. It was Toho's 1,000th production, and an image commemorating that status is shown before the titles. The film is rated 6.8 on that movie database, with a total of only 168 votes at the time of the release of this episode. 
that makes it the movie with the second lowest number of votes ever covered on this podcast, after Half Human, from 1955. As a result, I can assume only a small number of Americans have seen this movie. The American version was cut from 182 to 112 minutes. It was released on December 20, 1960 by Toho. It was subtitled, not dubbed. There are quite a few forces at play. One is the conflict between a father who fears his loving and devoted son. Another conflict is Odo Tachibana's love for the prince versus the vow she has taken to serve the Ise Shrine. Another is the conflict between Yakumo and Azami versus the fact that they are from different castes. There is also a conflict between Princess Miyazu's devotion to her father versus her love for the prince and versus the prince's love for Odo Tachibana. One of the themes is that whoever the kami favor will triumph, if they respect the kami. Prince Yamato overcomes incredible odds in his adventures, and once he is defeated, he still wins in the end because of their help. Another theme is that true love should not be unnaturally blocked by issues such as caste. An overarching point of the film is to showcase the Shinto religion and the fundamental story of creation, and to couple it with the Yamato Takeru story to tie everything together. Prince Yamato's words at the end of the film are, We will build a country, like in the past when it was created, where people don't distrust each other. A country filled with strength and joy. Since it has once been like that, why shouldn't it be like that again? I refuse to die until everybody sees this miracle. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. First, we want to say how we encountered this film. I first saw this film after it was suggested to me by a certain person who uh, is on this program right now with me. (coughs) Yeah, (laughs) And I was amazed that it was going to be something this big. It's really fun, and I really like it. Uh, I've seen it about eight times in the past two weeks. It's been a journey. Anyway, how did you first encounter this film, Daniel? Man, it was probably, it's in in the total length of time I've been like a huge, huge kaiju fanatic and a lover of Japanese film in general. In the long run, I've, I've, this one's a relatively recent one, probably maybe four or five years ago was the first time I I finally got a chance to watch it. As a fan in America saying, I'm going to go watch The Three Treasures or The Birth of Japan or uh, whichever title you choose to refer to it as, it's not an easy task. Uh, this movie is um, very, very hard. To, it is track downable, to coin a phrase. You can find it. Uh, for the longest time, I searched and I searched and I searched because I had I had a list of of kaiju specific movies, movies with a big old monster in it that I had to see, and it took me years and years to whittle that list down to two more. And after after a while, I only had two. I had Half Human which at the time was banned and couldn't be seen. And it's still banned, but now it can be seen if you know where to look. And the other was The Three Treasures. And I thought, well, out of the two of these, The Three Treasures must be the easiest one to find, even though they're both hard to find. And my the first result I got was I, I checked eBay for The Three Treasures like daily. I was like, anything, anything, please. And then I finally found it unsubtitled on Laserdisc. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> which presented a couple of problems. A, it's it's unsubtitled, and I'm I'm not proficient enough to Jap- in Japanese to 
watch, you know, most things in Japanese, let alone something as thickly religious and cultural as the story of the founding of Shinto. And I didn't have a laser disc player, still, still don't. But I was fully prepared to invest in one and to get this movie just so I could see it. And the same day I was, I was ready to hit the button on a laser disc player and spend an ungodly amount of money on it. When I happened across a a website, and I uh, I don't think I've clicked a purchase button quicker in my life, and uh, sure enough, I got it and watched it, and I was just blown away by it. And I was expecting something because, you know, not a whole lot of this movie isn't talked about a lot in the United States, but when it's talked about, the Ten Commandments comes up a lot because not only was it made in response to it, it's it's very it's in that same genre. I'd say it's more in this the historical slash religious epic genre than it is in the kaiju genre, but nevertheless it is a kaiju movie. It does have a kaiju in it. So, you know, it it's it's very much like that and I but even then like the scale of the thing. Because you can watch, you know, like the Ten Commandments and you can watch something else like like Ben Hur. And the scale of these projects just sweeps you off your feet. And, you know, I heard that this was this film was Japan, specifically Toho's kind of answer to DeMille's film and other films like that. And but even so, when I watched it, I was just I was just blown away by how just grand it is. So I love love is such a spectacle really from beginning to end. And even, even the small moments where you've got one or two characters alone in a hut feel like big moments. And that's not easy to do. I was completely blown away. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of people, I, I had a similar experience, you know, come for the kaiju, stay for the historical religious spectacle. But um, it was, you know, I'm, I'm glad to say that knowing that the Orochi was in this film was a, a good excuse for me to seek it out for years. And I mean, before I finally found it in 2013 or 2014, I'd been looking for it for probably almost a decade. I'd been trying to track it down ever since I was really, really young and I'd heard about it. And I was like, I got to get this for my, my Godzilla, my Godzilla stuff, you know, the Toho monsters. It's that one of the last ones. I don't know how to get it. I got to find it. And uh, when I finally did, I was, I was just absolutely blown away. And so my, my DVD copy um, is one of the more, cherished i would say in my in my collection it's not a film i pull out and watch often because it's not going to be one of those ones i pull out often either yeah yeah and that's certainly not you know speaking to any kind of you know issue with the film or to the film's detriment at all it's just like who who sits down and watches the ten commandments you know every three or four days you know what i mean it's it's a beautiful film but you gotta it's so big you have to let it sink in (laughs) i guess but yeah the three treasures is like that for me but i uh it was nice to get that checked off my list um, for a completionist's sake and also for the sake that it's just a, a movie I wanted to see on its own merits. And a, it was, a, you know, exposure to Hiroshi Inagaki, which is really, really great. You know, any Toshiro Mifune in my life is good. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and absolutely. Toshiro Mifune is a big deal to me, too. And, and I'm so oh, happy yes. to finally get to a Toshiro Mifune <laughs> film. And uh, getting back to the Ten Commandments, yeah, it's... I, I I like the Ten Commandments. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really prefer like a Roman, Egyptian, and Japanese epics. Uh, yes. Although, yeah, this was this would be the response to Ten Commandments. Is, is this movie? Mm-hmm. But then absolutely. And and then in the same year that this movie came out, Ben Hur just blew away everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost unfair to be like, okay, here's the, here's this movie, and then here's Ben Hur. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Which is uh, just fabulous. But this, oh yes, uh, this this movie did a really good job. And have you seen uh, Inagaki's uh, Samurai Trilogy? Yes, I've seen. I have very vague memories of them, but it was one of those Blu-ray sets I picked up during one of Barnes and Noble's Criterion sales because I was like, I have to get this. I'd been wanting it forever, and it's been a while since I've seen them. But yeah, very similar. I mean, obviously, we got the same star and the same director. So it's there. Those are it's a lot of the same actors, a lot of the same as Toho at the same period, a few years earlier, of course. But just those films are epic. Those films are beautiful films. And I mean, to, it's a lot. I mean, Toshiro Mifune, who else could you have gotten to play the most legendary samurai ever, even though those films are somewhat romanticized versions of the actual uh, the actual character he's portraying? Then you have him as Yamato Takeru. You know what I mean? Like, there's no... I, who else would you have gotten to do those two roles? Yeah. It's amazing. It's like he went from Miyamoto Musashi to Yamato Takeru. And without, you know, nobody blinked, I'm sure. They're like, oh, it's Toshiro Mifune. He's got this. Like, who else could have done it? Yeah, I was hoping I wouldn't have to wait until doing a Kurosawa film on this podcast to actually do a Toshiro Mifune film. Yeah, if uh, hey, if they the original plans for Atragon had gone through, you, you would have gotten to him at that point because he was, he was supposed to be the captain. Jun Tazaki eventually took that role and he was magnificent in it. But he was almost in Atragon as the captain. Very close. Well, but cool. um, I'll have to remember that when we do Atragon because we're gonna Yeah, that's a that's too. a good that's a good fun fact. They were interested in getting Mifune for um the role of Jinguji. And again, I love Jun Tazaki in that role. I, he's he's in all of those films. Usually he's a general. You know what I mean? Yes. He's usually the guy who's ordering somebody to shoot a monster. In the three treasures, he's the Aino chief yes and um but he's a, he's a fantastic actor but could you imagine toshiro mifune piloting the atragon to go take out manda <laughs> like I that would have i can imagine that about as easily as i can imagine him as obi-wan kenobi <laughs> which that would have been interesting too that would have been interesting that would have been interesting Alabama's, but yeah oh, oh yeah again certainly no detriment to the <laughs> to the the people who got those sir roles alec, yeah. sir yes yeah, sir alec guinness may he rest in peace Yes, and we also have uh, Akihiko Hirata. I mean, pretty much everybody's in this film, but Hirata Everyone. has a little bit more significant part than uh, Akira Takarada or Akira Kubo and a lot of the other actors that we are familiar with because of all these Godzilla movies. Uh, Absolutely. Hirata plays uh, Kibino Takahiko, who was one of mm-hmm. Katsumato's captains. And, and spoiler alert, he's one of the only ones to live <laughs> through the yes. whole movie. <laughs> exactly. He's one of like, was like five guys that made it, four or five guys that made it back to the village. Yeah, but um, he's he's great in this. I mean, Hirata sounds good in pretty much anything. He's got a great commanding performance. He's kind of the voice of reason in this film. I think he kind of counters the more brash moments that uh, Takeru has. And he's Takeru's like the, got a, he's like the know. sane friend of a of a Shakespearean central figure. Who yes, the voice of reason. Yeah, that that's very very true. Yeah, and I mean the the cast in this thing was just amazing. Hirata's great. I really, and I mean, it, I'm a big Takashi Shimoda fan anyway from his, yeah, me too. I mean, if you don't, you know, if you watch Akiru and you're not sobbing from his performance alone, then like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he, the, the man yeah, is my favorite film period. And maybe, all oh yeah, Japanese you've got, you've got good sure. taste. Cause that film is, I mean, it feels like calling it a masterpiece is almost not enough. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of those just, you have to sit back in awe of Ikiru, but he cracks me up in this film because he's the drunken, crazy yes. Kamaso brother. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I got I first time I saw that, I was watching the movie and I saw all these people pop up. Oh my gosh, there's Setsuko Hara. You know, she's amazing. She's the sun goddess. Talk about perfect casting. She was revered in Japan. Exactly. Um, you know, there's Akira Takarada who has two lines. There's, whoa, is that like baby Akira Kubo sitting on a pillow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of hanging just, out. Yeah, he's just planted on there, just kind of staring. and He just kind of stares. He's the one who's the too young to do anything. Line. There's Jun yeah. Tazaki with crazy hair. There's Ikio Sawamura being the, the creepy old... Uh, God who is peeping at the uh, the obscene dance, <laughs> and the, everyone's in this. If you look carefully, Yu Fujiki is in there. Um, he's not complaining about his corns this time, though, which is always nice. And oh, um, yeah, uh, Kyoko Kagawa, who's another legend in Japan, and kaiju fans know her from Mothra. Yep. And uh, that was her only other kind of genre, I guess you could say, thing. And she doesn't really talk about her special effects pictures that much anymore. She's still around and she still works, too. And then here's Takashi Shimura, who's this great. I mean, he's, you know, the best samurai ever. You know what I mean? He's, you know, he's crazy and he's awesome. And he's so he's usually so he's very quiet actor. He he has an intensity to him where you can look at him and you can say, man, he's thinking about something. And in this movie, he's not in it long, but he's laughing and he's flangling his arms around and he's he's hitting on uh, <laughs> Takeru before he knows it's a guy. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> and be- Oh, those beautiful eyes. And of course, he, he looks like he's going to kill him. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, your eyes are so beautiful. No, no, you're you're going to die. And of course, two seconds later, he super dies. But he it's like talk about talk about range. You know what I mean? Like if you ever doubted that Shimura could do anything other than be very, very dramatic or very, very actiony or anything like this. He's one of the lighter moments in the film, even though he's a jerk of a character. Yeah, it's yeah. I think we could start with the chronological uh, rundown now. And yeah, yeah. We begin with the higher celestial plane, uh, Takamagahara. Yes. The, our first god is born, Ame no Minakanushi. Mm-hmm. The earth has not materialized even yet. And then we get our first man and first woman, the last two of our uh, higher echelon gods. Yes. In Izanagi and Izanami. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's that painting that they sort of recreated in this movie, uh, the part where uh, yeah. the two of them have the uh, spear. Yes. And they're, and, they're, and they're touching it, and they're creating the island. It was, oh, it's such a beautiful moment. Yeah. And so they were charged by the gods with creating the earth. And they descended from the Rainbow Bridge, and they created the first island, and were married, and then they created the eight islands of Japan, mm-hmm. which are not the eight islands that you'd think that they're talking no, about. No, no. <laughs> It's actually it's true. Yamato, which is Honshu, Tsukushi, which is Kyushu, Io, which is Shikoku, and then mm-hmm. Tsushima, Awaji, Ogi, Iki, and Sado. Uh, Hokkaido is not in there, and neither are the Northern Territories. Amaterasu mm-hmm. is the goddess of the sun, and Suzano is the god of storms and sometimes of the sea. Yes. And then we switch to our main plot, and we get the old woman in the beginning who was narrating and she's what she's telling this tale orally uh, to everybody, mm-hmm. which that is a nod to how the, the, uh, the oral tradition worked with. Yes, absolutely. Down these stories from one generation yeah. to the next. And eventually it, be- you know, eventually became a movie. <laughs> yes. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. That talk about preserving it. Yeah. 
And then the, the prince's brother, this is when I get all of our plot. And the prince's yes. brother took a girl who was supposed to be uh, in the emperor's household that equals dishonor. And then mm-hmm. we get our, our Yahara character, you know, the big dude. And yes. the prince, he was the one that told the prince about this in the first place. And then exactly. he started the rumor later that the prince killed his brother. Mm-hmm. He's just, all, he's the conniving guy. Gossiping, you know, that yes. wonderful little part. And he doesn't kill his brother in this version. And uh, even though in the original version of the mm-hmm. story, he brutally kills his brother. Yes, he, he he destroys him. There's there's a couple of marked differences in this film between the you know, the, with the original myth. And yeah, this one, I think, was one. it was really done to, to drive home how noble a character Takeru is. Because it's it's the first thing you see, really, of him in the film is he comes home from the hunt. And then he finds out his brother's done this thing. And he, he beats the tar out of him. But he doesn't kill him in the film version. And I wonder if maybe that was done to maybe make him a little more sympathetic. I'm not, I honestly don't know, but it's possible. And it was also possibly a way to move away from the violence because this is, you know, post-war era Japan Mm -hmm. and the Bushido and all of that isn't as big of a thing. And so you, try to I, move away from that yeah. a little bit as well as make him sympathetic. More sympathetic. I totally agree and with that. And also yeah. the, I would say something about the definition of manhood sort of changed uh, between mm, that and now. And so they want to have it a little bit updated comparatively. And, and obviously they're talking about a historical figure too. So they're kind of rehabbing the, the historical figure's reputation kind of coming out of the gate. Yes, that, definitely. I don't really have too much of a, problem with that I, I oh no certainly not what they were go what the, where they were going now if if this was just a made-up character just for this movie something mm-hmm. like that you'd have somebody like you'd have hitchcock come out or one of his writers and they'd be like oh it's toshiro mifune you could have him kill his mother and everybody would be fine <laughs> with it later you know, this he, is true he can come you know they're they're not called actors for nothing uh, mm-hmm. They can come back from any, any just from a thing, can come back from anything. But since we're talking about a historical figure, that's uh, the different rules and, and conditions are applying. Yeah. But it's, it's also part of a, a tradition, like you said, an oral tradition. And there are a lot of, like, if you look at, you know, stories and they can be anything from grand myths to, you know, like a ghost, a ghost story. There's an argument to be had that um, if you're not changing it a little bit to suit your whatever generation is there to hear it, then it kind of misses the point of like an evolving mythology. And there's that's that's a school of thought on like the transmitting of of stories and things like that. Yeah, this um, has been evolving since before it was even written down. Yes, it's it's this story, um, as I think we'll talk about in a little bit, may not even entirely originate from Japan. And that'll be an, that'll that's which I find interesting. I find yes, that fascinating. Right. Yeah. yeah, the way that all these legends can be sometimes connected to each other because they go mm-hmm. for such a long period of time. Yeah. The emperor is played by Janjiro uh, Nakamura, who was actually in Kaidan uh, from 1964, uh, five years. Which I, oh, I love that film. Film, yeah. God, that film's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then Prince Yamato meets Princess uh, Yamato, his aunt. And she is played by Kanuyo Tanaka, and she was in Redbeard from 1965. Mm-hmm. Talks with her. She calls him out on not about him not telling the truth about not killing his brother. Then we find Oro Tachibana, and he gets his hair tangled in her necklace at, at the uh, Issei Shrine, which is the most holiest uh, shrine in all of uh, Japan. This is the first big encounter that he has with the woman who would become his wife. Now, the yes. par- part of this is about the fact that she's kind of actually a consort 
more than she's his wife in a way, even though that he, mm-hmm. even though they do have relations. But it's a, there's been some possible thing about her being added into the story actually later on, as as just to be part of the story. But yes, it, it could work either way. Uh, Ocho Tajibana is played by Yoko Tukasa, who was in Yojimbo. Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! Another character cool. we have is uh, Otomo, and he is one of uh, he's the actual vassal of the uh, emperor. Yeah, and he wants one of Prince Osu's half brothers to be the next emperor instead of him, because yeah. killing supposedly killing his brother made. By doing that, Prince Himato made himself the uh, heir to the throne. He is played by Eijiro Tono, uh, and he was in Yojimbo, and he was also in Tora Tora Tora. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's cool. That I didn't make that connection. The whole thing about Princess Yamato and Princess Orotachibana knowing that he's literally, this is like a death sentence for him. Yeah. That, yeah. That's driven home in that scene. Orotachibana is like, gosh, that's horrible. What what can we do? And the princess is like, hey, I I I could try, but there's nothing I could do. And yeah. uh, it's just it's sort of like one of those moments that you have in legendary stories like this. You know, yeah, where absolutely, you're just stuck, and, and you have to. There, there's this thing that you have to avoid, and there, it's impossible to. And it's yeah. just the sense of uh, destiny and a sense of uh, fate. Really. Yes. And, and a lot of Daps these stories up, yeah. deal with, with, with fate. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's definitely a thing that's in mythologies all over the planet. This, this feeling of this immovable thing that you're, you, you're going towards and you can't, you can't get away from it. You have to brace yourself in whatever way that's, you know, the story calls for. You have to wait for the challenge to come. You have to wait for this, this thing you have to get past or even death. You know, like th- this wall could be death. You know what I mean? It yeah. could be anything. It could be something emotional. It could be something physical. And that really depends on who's telling the story. And that's another one of these great, the great things about watching a film or reading a story in some, in some way like this that is a myth because it's all connected. Yeah. The shrine at Issei, which is the uh, big deal and is shown a couple of times in this movie, there's mm-hmm. a ritual ceremony called the Ohare. And that is when the troops are purified by the priest, by the priestess and Orotachibana as before they go off to battle. Orotachibana then gives him the sacred treasure to have. And I, I saw this thing that she gives him, and I'm like, okay, what is, what's the deal with this? What's the point in the story that they're showing us this? And yeah. it's a mirror. The Shiratori no Kagami is a sacred treasure for her. And it's part of her vow to the kami and to the shrine. So by giving this thing to him, she has desecrated it kind of by doing this. Because yeah, this she, is not she, something she was supposed to do. She broke a rule. That's not the first rule she breaks either in this story, but she definitely breaks it. Now the part when, when she is in the river and when he's in the waterfall... Yes. And you notice he's in the waterfall and he's having a point. He's like right in it. And then uh, he claps his hands once too. Yes. Uh, And I was like, wait a minute. Okay. That's a ritual of some sort. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's what both of them are going through. And it's the ritual of Miso Gihare, which is a purification by water. And that's what that's called. Okay. Yeah. It's to clean, 
clean yourself in order to be in the presence of the kami. So that's, that's cool. What's going on in there? Yeah. So she's in the river. He's in the waterfall. They're both doing this old school. Not everybody who goes to a shrine in Japan has to do go that far with it. Uh, usually, yeah. there's the, the fountain with the uh, the water uh, ladle. You know, and yes, and that's what I that that's what I did when I when I visited, and I I don't remember what shrine it was, but it was a, a shrine in uh, somewhere in Tokyo. I like one of my my bucket list things was I wanted to go pray to Shinto shrine. Like I just, I had to do oh, this yeah. and I, I got to the, I got to it and there was the water and the, the ladles and I was instructed on how to do it properly and accurately. And I, it crossed my mind. Like when I came in, um, cause after I got back, one of the, I did watch this movie and I thought to myself, man, that's, that's gotta be related, but I didn't know what it was called. I did not know that that was the name of that thing, but yeah, purification via water. And so I, I have done that. And it's, it's really cool. <laughs> it's really, really cool to see that. Yeah, I look forward to doing that. Yeah, I hope you get to someday. It's, it's absolutely worth it. The prince's brother then shows up, uh-oh, and, uh, and in front of Otomo. And he decides mm-hmm. to uh, take him out because that would yep. be proof that the emperor's other son is alive. Then the emperor wouldn't need to be sad and would change his mind. And that would ruin exactly. the chance to get rid of Prince Osu and uh, what they in, and be able to get Prince Wakatarashi as the next emperor. Yeah, he had to snuff him out. Mm-hmm. He had the to have a whack. Kumaso, younger Kumaso is interesting. Yes. And he is played by Koji Tsuruta, who was in the third movie in the Samurai trilogy. I think he was the bad guy. I think he, I, if I'm remembering the right, the right face, I think he was the, he was the bad guy there too. Yeah. I mean, in, you know, Younger Kumaso is not necessarily the villain in this, but no. and right because yeah. he wants to conspire uh, with the prince, and yeah. he was he, ready to kill uh, the, his brother Takashi Shimura's he, character. He wanted he wanted Shimura dead, man. He was like, I can't. Yeah. This guy's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then and then the prince is too reactive, too proud, and he decides not to meet the younger Kumaso brother. Now then, there's this subplot with Azami. Who is uh, mm-hmm. Kumi Mizuno, played by Kumi? Yes, that's the earliest I think we've seen her in a genre picture as well. I mean, it I mean, she acted be. before this, but this was before she was in, you know, most of the films that kaiju fans would know her best for, Gorath being one of her earlier ones. But yeah, she's you know she's not in this film a lot, but she's she's a stupendous actress and she's great in this film. And then another moment of pride for the prince is when. Takahiko, who is a Hirata, he's, uh, mm-hmm. he has a lot of concern about losing and getting the prince killed if they decide to go with the, the plot that they devise in order to get the prince into the presence of the Kumasa brothers and then to kill them, because it's a pretty risky plot. Yeah. Prince is not having any of it. You know, he said, well, no, he's not. <laughs> you're dissing my ability, man. I can do yeah, that. exactly. It's like you you don't think I can pull this off. I'm just he doesn't he like smash a vase. He crushes something. Yes. He destroys something. Yeah. He's very upset. But uh, again, that plays throughout. Yeah, he that plays back into what we were talking about earlier about Hirata being the cooler voice of reason to the the brashness that uh, Takeru sometimes displays throughout mm-hmm. the story, where he's like, I've I can do this, so I will do this, and Hirata is like. Or we think about this, you know, like the guy wants to talk to you. He wants to make peace. You know, we want to find out. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to go kick his butt. My, yeah. <laughs> my, my dad, my dad will love me if I kick his butt. 
<laughs> it's really sad, actually. Yeah, he he has a lot of a filial sense for his for his father. Definitely, he does. He does a lot obligated. of. Yeah, a lot of his actions throughout the film, and pretty much every action he does throughout the film, is because yeah. his dad told him and or to make his father, you know, proud, yeah. proud to love him, to respect him in some way. And uh, he, he weeps in the film when he thinks his father doesn't love him. He cries. Yeah. Then we have our part with Takashi Shimura, and, yes. as we talked about. And then we have our obligatory sort of dancers because it's the late 50s and it's a movie like this, you know, just like we had obligatory dancing scene right at the beginning of Mysterians. That's right. Uh, and then the prince puts on the women's clothes, goes in, as we've said, and then uh, he's able to kill, he's able to kill the first Kumaso brother. And then the, he fights the younger one. And then that's when the younger uh, Kumaso brother, he gives Yamato Takeru his name. Yes. And so he changes his name from Prince Osu to Yamato Takeru. And his honor is showcased then later on by when he when Yahara shows up again, and he mm-hmm. has some of the Kumaso servant girls. Yeah, He's like, I brought these women for you, and he is not having any of it. Oh yeah, that that happens a couple times where he's just like, here, yep. take the take these ladies, and uh, Takeru just like goes into a rage, especially the the second time where he just beats the tar out of him. And uh, mm-hmm. rightfully so, I must say, <laughs> like yeah. that's that's about as not OK as you can possibly get. And um, he, you know, it's always it's it's always nice seeing those characters like get their comeuppance. It's like, here are these women. Uh, go ahead and do with them what you will. And uh, no, you deserve to get the crud beat out of you, buddy. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's that's bad. Prince Yamato then returns to his homeland of Yamato and then he immediately gets into it with Otomo. And Otomo immediately sends him off on another mission. And the emperor, when he's asked about this, he's like, well, there's reasons. And then a very specific reason, actually. Prince Yamato's like, wait a minute, why not Prince Wakatarashi, who is uh, played by Akira Takarada, or Prince mm-hmm. Yogi, who is played by Akira Kubo. And little baby Akira Kubo. Around. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they give little excuses like, oh, well, um, he's too young and I need to uh-huh. talk to like, people. We can't, we can't send those guys. You, really you killed the Kamaso brothers. People are scared of you. You can do it. We yeah, believe you in you. did this impossible task. Here's another yeah, one. It's like, it's like, if you're really so great, they pull the old, if you're really so great, then this shouldn't be a problem for you. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's bad. Poor guy. Yeah. And the major issue here is that he nor his troops have even rested. No, they just got home again. Yeah. Yeah. He's being summoned to go. And it's, you know, it's not really talked about just how far away Kumaso is from Yamato, but it's implied that going east is like a lot worse. That's a lot farther. It's Mm -hmm. a lot longer journey. It's a lot less specific. You know what I mean? It's like, here, go to Kamaso, then come back. Here, go east and just start hurting people. There's this village here, then the Ainu, and then you got to get in a boat and you got to go even farther. And it's like they just wanted him. They just wanted him as far away as they could possibly get him. Yes, and uh, Kumaso, the area that they're talking about, is in uh, near Kumamoto Prefecture in yes. Kyushu. So that's where, roughly where uh, Kumaso was. But mm-hmm. uh, so then we go into our uh, Godland again, and this is where Amaterasu she gave the gods each a piece of heaven, and this is where we first see. Uh, Toshiro Mifune as the other big character yes. in this, as a Susano, 
and he, he gets uh, to be a little insane. Tomatarasu's brother. <laughs> yes, yeah. the god, yeah, the god of storms, and then that's when he, in the original story, he destroys her rice fields as well as throwing the flayed horse uh, mm-hmm. into uh, the area where they're at with the loom, and. Uh, suddenly it's the Godfather, only it's an entire horse. <laughs> Man, I think it takes it, it up a notch. Believes this is unforgivable. And yeah. then she is distressed and upset and she hides in the Amano Iwato, which is a heavenly, the heavenly rock cave. Yes. Now, th- this story is really about the eclipse, essentially, right? It sure seems like it's. It seems like it. There are a lot of stories. If you go back, there's a lot of stories, myths, legends, and even just you know folk tales about Explaining the sun, phenomenon. the sun going away in some way. In the uh, the Kalevala, there's. I want to say there's a story about uh, an evil. I don't know what she is. She's like a witch, and she's she's upset, and so she steals the sun. And then they have to go get the sun back. You know what I mean? Like, that's a thing that happens in a lot of stories. And it, you know, it could be used by a primitive people to just to figure out, well, there's an eclipse or, you know, even as simple as the sun went down, you know, like sun, yeah. you know, knowledge, sun, even yeah, sun worship be, yeah, is a thing. Sun going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could be just as simple as that. Like the, the, the sacrificial practices that were done in South America by the Aztecs and the Mayans were to you know like a, a lot of in a lot of those cultures it was to ensure that the sun would come back up because they didn't want the sun to go away because the sun makes your crops grow and the sun keeps you warm and it gives you light and over generations it permutated into you know we have to take human lives in order to make sure that this this basic thing that people need doesn't go away from us so lack of sun the stealing of the sun the removal of the sun pops up a lot in culture and i I suppose this would be this particular legend's version of that but you know in this case the goddess is horribly and rightfully so offended uh (laughs) you know offense via dead horse throwing and um and and the and then one of the one of amaterasu's uh girls women is also uh killed yeah she's yeah She's killed trying to escape in the movie, but then actually, Susano actually kills her. Mm-hmm. The, that's one of the, the big, actual one story. of the differences. Yeah, and I, that one I'm not sure. Again, it could have. It I guess could it goes be back a similar to the same thing. thing. Same thing, yeah. But it's that one. You know, that one. It's it's again. It doesn't hurt the story at all. That's the character got killed, and Amaterasu ends up in the cave. So the progression is the same. But it's it's interesting that that's one of the things that they changed. That's definitely interesting, and then it and then it gets into the dancing after that. <laughs> yeah, and we go back to storytelling lady, and and one of the women that's listening to this story has a has a point to make about oh well, Amaterasu is the the goddess of the sun, and then the then the old woman's like, you've got a point there. <laughs> and I just laugh every time that that happens, but I love that the 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 gods then they meet by the Ama no Yasugawara River. And there is a shrine there, uh, and that is in uh, by the river in Iwato, in mm-hmm. Miyazaki Prefecture in Kyushu. And that's where the cave actually is that they say that Amaterasu went into. Yes. And then there's the—you would not see the obscene dancing in the Ten Commandments. No. 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 <laughs> that's, that's sin, and, and so this, this, this religion seems a bit more cheery than— uh, yeah. Yeah, and there is, and it's it's interesting. Yeah, because when you when you watch the ten, because the Ten Commandments does have a quote unquote obscene dancing moment, but it's done for entirely different reasons. In the Ten Commandments, 
it's this this horrible moment where the the characters have just become like an entire the entire race of people that have escaped from you know from Egypt have just become these horrible slovenly you know beings and they're they're worshiping this false god and they're they're throwing women at it and they're doing terrible things in front of the statue yeah, you know and they they've filming it yeah yeah <laughs> they lost <laughs> They lost their way, you know, as as a people, and they spent they did spend a lot of time putting that together. That was a crazy, crazy scene. Like just, I mean, just watch, look at a picture of it. Google a picture of it and look at all the yeah. people. Like it was insane, and you know, there's you know debauchery left and right, and but then you watch this film, and you know the a the it, it's it's hard to look at that dance from American an American culture perspective and say, oh yeah, that's an obscene dance. But um, because that has an entirely different connotation these days here in America, but it's done with the intent of cheering up a sun goddess. Yeah. You know, it wasn't done to defile the one true God or to mm-hmm. proclaim the, the golden calf as being above the, the, the God of Israel. It's they, they do a dance so that they can make themselves laugh so they can make their friend happy. It's yes. an, it's fascinating. And then one of the gods is even sneezing from the cold. Yes, I loved that guy. He yeah. was funny. Yeah, he I've was he was always funny. In movies too. I've yes. seen him, and again, I forget his. I cannot place his his name, but I've seen him before. He's mm-hmm. the, Toho had a wonderful repertory group of, of actors. A film. It seems likely, I, like an earlier one. Yeah. I don't remember which one it is. And then there's Sakuhara, like you mentioned, and she plays the mm-hmm. sun goddess, and she was in. A lot of stuff. Not only oh, yes. uh, not only late autumn and late spring, but she was also in Otsu's uh, Tokyo Story. Which yes, she loved. was. Yes, she was. Beautiful film, and, she, and uh, yeah, like you she said, was revered. If anybody should be casted as Amaterasu. Then yeah, this film is full of beautiful, perfect casting decisions. Again, we talked about Mifune, but in, ni- in nineteen fifty nine, if you wanted to cast the sun goddess, the most beautiful and you know re- revered of the, the 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 deities, then Setsukahara was that's who you were going to go for. You know, it almost feels like if you tried to do that today, it'd be like, oh, let's get Setsukahara to play the role. You know, mm, yeah, right. Setsukahara, you know, sure, I get it. <laughs> what, Whatever, man. She, she won't go for it. But she's in it, and she's, I mean, she's not in the film a lot, but, you know, she plays a pivotal role in that sequence, and, you know, the, all of the sequence. too. Oh, her, her costume's beautiful. She looks like she stepped out of a painting. Mm-hmm. You know, like all the sets look like they they were taken. I mean, a couple of them definitely were from paintings. Yeah. Absolutely were. Her headdress yeah. was right at, it was beautiful. The way she moved her head and the lights on the set made it look like the rays were shimmering in a pattern. I mean, it yes. was it was just beautiful. She she could have been a goddess. I mean, you looked at her in that film, and you would have had you had no doubt that I'm looking at something divine. And she was she was great. She was great. She's beautiful in that role. The costume was great, and um, the sets they put her on looked wonderful. And uh, it's a great moment. That one moment. It's one of the highlights of the movie for me. Is that entire sequence where they're yes. trying to get her out of the cave. I love that part. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And then it the, really the, is. Uh, it's the rice straw. And they make that into a rope. I thought that was a cool part of the that's, story. And then they, that's when they gate, they, they sort of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, put, the, they put the yellow <laughs> tape in front of the cave, no entry. No, you cannot go Please. in. Hazardous, do not Police cross. crime scene, whatever, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The only thing was missing was chalk, chalk yeah. outlines. Yeah. <laughs> and they had, oh, they had the god of uh, strength as the one to... Yes. 
open the cave. And I believe in the story is the god of strength who holds the the mirror. I believe so. And and again, that's that scene reminded me a lot of the the Kalevala story. And actually, have you ever seen the MST3K episode where they they riff on the day the Earth froze? No. Oh, geez, that's it's based on the Kalevala. I recommend that one. Have you? It's one of a series of of movies that they did the Russo the weird Russo Finnish movies that they did. Um, magic Vo- <laughs> yeah, the Magic Voyage Jack of Sinbad. Frost. Jack Frost is one. Yes. <laughs> they did uh, The Magic Voyage of Sinbad, which Sinbad's yeah. super not in it. And um, the other one was, man, they did they did four of them overall. And they're all based on these these old, you know, Russian tales, folk tales. And like the Kalevala was one of Tolkien's inspirations for a lot of uh, Lord of the Rings. And But that's like definitely watch The Day the Earth Froze <laughs> because it is... It is great. Watch that one, Sinbad, uh, The Sword and the Dragon, which has a nice Ghidorah reference because of the three-headed dragon that shows up at the end of the movie. <laughs> but um, in, in, the, in The Day of the Earth Froze, which was originally called Sampo in its original country, the, you know, it has, it's very much like this. It's very big, epic production. I'm sure there's a little DeMille in there. The princess is, is captured. She's a young woman. She's captured, and the guy who loves her and her brother, who's a blacksmith, go to the land of the, the evil witch to save her and she's imprisoned the, the the winds in giant these giant almost like burlap sacks and they're like these giant these giant bags the i am the north wind and they talk and so she can imprison elements and they go to get the the girl back and she says you have to build me this sampo this this foundry that will give me gold and riches and food for the rest of my life and they do get the girl back and they build this thing and then they destroy it and flee from the island to, to get her home, they destroy the foundry, the Sampo, and uh, the witch takes revenge. She flies to the to the land of Kalevala to uh, steal the sun from the people, and it s- sends them into an eternal darkness. And then they have to go to her, and uh, I don't remember what they do to to destroy her. And then they just like in this film, one of the guys walks up and he grabs the stone in the cave and he moves it pushes it as strong as he can, and the sun is inside the cave and it comes out and lights up the land. And it's very similar to to this film, I found. And with the added benefit of uh, Joel Crow and Tom Servo joking over it. <laughs> yes, that's always good. Which, which always helps, yes. There's been Mystery Science Theater. I've mentioned it every episode this season so far. Oh, yeah. Respect. We almost have like a little Ben-Hur thing going on at the end of the first half of this movie. Because mm-hmm. uh, Prince Yamato actually walks up on uh, the old woman who is telling the story. Yes, and she's, and she's narrating all the story anyway, and it's kind of like Ben Hur, where like just Jesus shows up and then just mm-hmm. leaves. <laughs> like, <laughs> it like, was oh, similar. Okay, I guess, I guess they had a little bit of that going on. Hey Jesus, what's going on, man? Yeah, how's it going? Oh, bye. We're gonna get back. Thanks, to thanks, story. thanks for visiting. Yeah, <laughs> the paintings don't do you justice, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's which similar. I always love movies that are so long that they have an intermission. I I'm see. I love that long movies. <laughs> I I like long movies too. I love movies that are so long that they do have to be broken up because the first this movie in its original Japanese cut does clock in at 182 minutes. It's right. very long. It's a little over three hours long. So half one is about the length of a normal movie. You know what I mean? It's a little shorter than a normal movie, both halves, and you, you cram them together, but it doesn't feel like that while you watch it. The trick to doing a long movie is to make it feel like you're not watching a long movie. You know what I mean? Um, 
like uh, Kurosawa did that really, really well. I mean, the yeah. Seven Samurai is, you know, like if there have been governments that have, you know, come into existence and toppled, you know, <laughs> slower than that movie, <laughs> the length of that movie. You know what I mean? It's that movie. It's long, but it doesn't feel like it because the minute it starts, bam, you are in that film and you are swept along and it's beautiful. Um, you know, Peter Jackson does that too, because, you know, the, the, the return of the King alone is like 78 hours long. The director's cut, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's long. And, but when you're watching it, you're, you're into the characters, you're into the setting, you're into the mythology of it. And if you're there, if they've got you, the length ceases to matter. And the, you know, this movie is very, 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 very long. Three hours long. A lot of modern audiences would probably look at the length and go, nah, I don't know about that. But when you watch, I mean, it doesn't feel like a three hour movie while you watch it. No, and I, I'm not intimidated at all by longer movies. No, no, longer movies have never all. been like that. No. I've always, like, did, Ten Commandments is is really, really, it's longer than this. Yeah. And um, Ben-Hur's long. I mean, they're just, they're long, long films. And when I see films with long run times, I've never once been like, oh, that's too long for me. I couldn't sit down or I couldn't do this. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that for, you know, people who, who may not want to sit through long films. But for me, it's it's never been a deterrent from sitting down and watching a good movie. I, exactly. you know, I love long movies. That's that's good stuff. So the prince talks with Princess Yamato again at Issei. Yes. And he's crying because he thinks his father wants him dead. And, well, he's right. And mm-hmm. <laughs> what does she do? She says, man the heck up. Yep, she tells him, she basically tells him to, to grow a pair, which is... Yeah, Susan yeah which is better than this. Uh-huh, he's better. Yeah, you're not, you're not as good as that, the trickster god. Yeah. Um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta man up. Mm-hmm. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta grow up and stop. She literally calls him a baby, at least in the subs that we yes. saw him seen. And the subs seem pretty accurate. back to Susan O when he is crying and then he, everything dries up. Yes, he just, all the earth dries up. All the earth dries so up. Yeah. Yeah, what a brilliant move casting Mifone in both those roles. Both, I mean, yeah. it was they 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 had some. I mean, again, per he was perfect for that role, and so having the two of them contrast and compare, mostly compare, by having them be the same actor was a really really good move. And yeah, it's it's a it's a really really sad moment because he basically one ups himself, or he's he's crying in front of his aunt, and then she says, "Oh, and this is what Susano did," and he's he literally has a tantrum, you know, well deserved one, but a tantrum so epic that it all the water on the earth goes away. You know what a comparison. Mm-hmm. And then his aunt gives him the the sword, the sword of the gathering clouds of heaven, Kusanagi yes. no Turugi, big deal, and she kind of then. Uh, well, now it's referred to the gra- as the grass cutting sword, and it represents yes. bravery, valor, and she kind of BSs him, and she <laughs> says, oh, the yeah. em- because the emperor is giving it to him, she says, and it's not true, mm-hmm. and then she does that smile where it's like you have cracked china in your mouth. Yes, it's that was a that, lot. If, if you watch a lot of these movies, thing, and it's, yeah. it's so fake, and I know that that's what they were going for, and then she throws in the bag as well to open if he gets into trouble. And then mm-hmm. the sword is is meant for defense, and it is so that he will negotiate before fighting. It's a very yes. interesting idea. It is. And he seems like the ruler to do it, too. Yeah. And without yeah. the cornerstone of his father loving him, he's kind of lost, without control. 
Yeah, that's a, she that's really all that he has by giving him the sword. Yes, and he can go on, and he can he can go on his long journey with joy in his heart, as he says. He can go, and he can he can face whatever challenges, knowing that he has the love of his father, which obviously isn't isn't true. Sadly. And then she says to Odo Tachibana, if you break your vow of not loving a man ever, when the gods will punish you. Foreshadowing. No. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We got our little loaded uh, aspect of uh, what we think her fate is going to end up being. Yeah. Then we go back into uh, the part about, and it's interesting because then it's Prince Yamato who tells his men about Suzano and his back. Yeah. And that's that's the interest. That's really really cool because the first time I saw it, I thought, well, the old woman will be the one to eventually get to the Orochi story. Uh-huh. And no, no, it was it was Yamato Takiru who tells it. And again, that's fairly, you know, appropriate considering all of the comparing that they've done with him and Suzano. Yeah. So he's the one to tell the story. And of course, this is the story that gets the kaiju fans into the film. This is the probably the most famous part of the film for people who don't know that much about it. Yeah, and he meets Princess Kushinada and her parents, and then they said her seven sisters were all taken by the Orochi. He It visits every year. Yes, one daughter a year. <laughs> and yeah, and then Suzano decides, no, I'm going to save her. He turns her into comb. <laughs> I love her, that. Puts, puts her in his hair. And then he probably drops her out of his hair later on. And then he just, he just, the comb just falls out. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I guess my hair isn't long enough. Yeah, and then we get to our wonderful Yamata, Yamata no Orochi. Yes, we it do. makes me think of Clash of the Titans, only not necessarily uh, the stop-motion part. Mm-hmm. He drinks the sake and falls asleep after getting drunk. And the fight is a uh, little odd at times. I get what they were trying to do. but the, and, mm-hmm. and like the part where he pulls the sword out and then he finds the the Kusanagi no Tsurugi in the tail of the monster after he kills it. Yes. And then he revives her from the comb and he marries her. That's the that's the, the what what happens, but the the battle's yeah. interesting. It's it's the perspective is interesting. In so many different ways. Yeah. They used a lot of I don't tricks. Know if they, yeah, they did a lot. And we're going to go into all the sort of toku satsu moments. Yeah, yeah. And special absolutely. effects and, and other visual effects uh, moments later, but for now, that's that's what happens, and it's it's a pretty mm-hmm. awesome battle overall, though. Still, it's a good fight. I mean, it scratches the if they've ever had you know needed to scratch the itch of wanting to see Toshiro Mifune fight a kaiju with a sword. <laughs> and let's 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 be honest, who hasn't wanted to see that? You know, everybody wants to see that. That it's it, it that scratches the itch. Anybody had done. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's an interesting. That entire battle might very well be the first time in the genre where you did have a single person trying to fight this thing. I mean, it's it doesn't happen a lot. Moments where a single films really, yeah. No, it doesn't. I mean, a, a moment where a single person stands off against this big, this big monster, or at least they think that they can. That doesn't happen a lot in the genre because of the the vast difference in scale. I mean, King Kong versus Godzilla has the moment where um, Fumiko is running. Um, in her high heels through the through the forests and over the hills and through the streams as Godzilla is walking and he's not going after her specifically at least it doesn't doesn't look like he is but she's trying to get away from him and it is a one it is one person versus a monster moment um same thing with Kumi Mizuno in um sea monster uh 
probably the more applicable one would actually be Yuki from Space Godzilla, where he thinks he can uh, shoot blood coagulant into, into Godzilla's arm and he chases him, uh, crawls through the jungle, you know, across the beach, a mano a mano, trying to take out the monster. And you, you know he believes he can do it, even if nobody else does. And that's actually one of my favorite sequences from any one of any Godzilla film is Yuki running trying to trying to catch this thing and trying to shoot him it's just well shot i liked that part a lot but it it, there's a little bit of that i think you know in that space godzilla scene that moment where you got the the hero who wants to win but you believe suzano can win because he's you know he's a god and he said he's he can do it he's like nah it's no problem i'll kill it it's fine i got Mm -hmm. this you you just get in my pocket (laughs) turning into a comb get in my pocket it is a very interesting battle i love the perspective from and again they shoot it from a different many different perspectives lots of different effects tricks which we'll talk about later but um i particularly like where you're seeing Suzano face on but it's a wide shot and the heads are above him and they're kind of yeah. snapping at him like th- that was cool the puppeteering yeah, like was really that. really good for that like and the the design of Orochi is great and again we'll talk about that in a little bit but he looks great yeah. it's a it's definitely the highlight i think the special effects wise, the highlight of the film, I'd argue it might be like the, the highlight of the film and not just as a Kaiju fan, but just, it's pretty darn epic. Yeah. And there's a, like there's it, a good amount of buildup to it too. Yes. The, the, the atmosphere the is, is so important because it's about protecting the nation of Japan. It represents bravery. Yes. Very, very, very significant symbol. Mm-hmm. It's one of the three treasures. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah. Then we have a quite legendary thing occur with uh, Oro Tachibana because she loves him but she knows that the gods might end up destroying her. And yes. that's when she tells him, I hate you mm-hmm. and all that, even though she doesn't. And then, yeah, he, exactly. then he gets the mirror that she gave him and he throws it down on the ground, sort of casts it away. And that's further desecrating that treasure. Mm-hmm. Which is and now, now it's, now it's literally in the mud. Yes. Yeah. And then also in this little forest scene, there is Azami uh, and uh, Yakumo. And uh, then what does the prince do? He's, he marries he them says, on the spot. <laughs> yes, marries them on the, on the spot and says, forget about that. Forget about caste. Love is love. Go in peace. That's right. Etc. That's right. And then again, Yahara brings him women to cheer him up and he's not having it. And no. uh, he reacts more severely than ever this time. And then he frees the women that were taken. Then Princess Miyazu of Owari shows up. And she's played by Kyoko Kagawa, who was in she Tokyo is, yeah. Story and High and Low. And yes. uh, another Kurosawa. And she was also in the first Mothra movie as the wonderful photographer Mishi Hanamura. That's right. And, and I recognized her as soon as I saw her. She's she has a very recognizable face, like immediately when she comes into the scene and she kneels down, like my because I knew she was in the movie before the first time I saw it and I was like, where is she? I wonder where. Oh my god, there she is! Like I, you could feel her walking into the scene. She has a heck of a presence, warmth, a very warm presence. Yes, yes, she absolutely. And they believe that that Prince Imato is going to attack them, and she yes and poisons sake. Uh, then she realizes he's a good man despite all of the reputation. And then she confesses to him that that's what was going on. And mm-hmm. then we have, a, uh, for a short period in the film, we have this sort of love triangle. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. He's, he still loves Oto Tachibana. 
and she still loves him, but Princess Miyazu wants to be with him instead. And so she meets her, actually, and says yeah. how beautiful she is. Oto Tachibana says it's her job just to be a servant. Princess Miyazu's father warns her that he is with Oto Tachibana, but the princess doesn't want to give up. Exactly. So then we go to, <laughs> we go east. We go to the land of the Ainu and where our uh, warlord is. And that is Kurohiko is the character's name. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, Jun Tazaki. Yes. And he's rebellious against the emperor. And we find out, oh, Oto Tachibana has tagged along. And uh, she's saying her uh, that his aunt told her to, and that's not what happened either. Yeah. And then because the dancing has gone awry because of Oto Tachibana showing up, then they decide, oh, let's go boar hunting. And then I feel like we get like a, it's the Japanese version of the the hunt in, in America yeah. with, the, with the dogs uh, and they're chasing yeah. the, uh, <laughs> so it's only, it's like the Japanese version. So it's <laughs> Bless foxhounds though. Yeah. Going on a fox yeah. hunt. She shows up again. She confesses her love, and then the fire is started. And it's started by who? It's the Ainu, and they're mm-hmm. conspiring with Yahara. He opens up the bag, and there's flint, and he's able to start another fire, and then the sword changes the wind direction and turns. Uh, it goes backwards on all of the Ainu that were thought it was going to go the other way. Yahara yep. hides. And then Yamato Takeru realizes that the emperor, he's told that the emperor uh, was the one that wanted this. Yeah. So he's so been, this he's time been super screwed. Cornerstone, yeah. This time his cornerstone is really destroyed. Oh yeah. So that affects the way that he, that he acts. But then we get our scene with the ships and feels a lot like a Hercules movie at that point. It does feel very, it starts getting, it feels a little like Jason and the Argonauts for yes, a couple of seconds. Yeah. The, the uh, Harryhausen film. Yes. Out of that. And he decides impulsively as usual to go back to, you yeah. <laughs> instead of going East further, like the emperor said, then the two birds appear in the sky. Yes. Those are the Kami that are called the Shiratori, the white bird. And mm-hmm. those are the birds that they see right before the storm happens. Because th- this treasure that Oto Tachibana gave him, that was the treasure of that kami. And so yeah. this, is that, this is that kami giving them their bad fortune that they deserve. Yes. And right when they see those two birds up in the sky, I'm like, wait a minute. And mm-hmm. the first time I saw this, I was like, are we going to see Scylla and Charybdis here in a second? <laughs> and, and then what happens? Our, our tornado... We- Happens. We get a storm. Yeah. Yeah. We get, and our huge storm occurs and the sea carves out a path for, at four of them after she decides to do what is necessary. She jumps into yes. the ocean and sacrifices herself in order to please the Kami. And then the storm ends. And then, uh, she, so she saves everyone. She saves the yeah. life. And, uh, it's, it's because she disobeyed her vow. Yeah. And it's, it's divine retribution. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's. I find it interesting, like in that scene, she jumps in, she disappears. There's a glowing green light under the surface. Yeah, and then her clothes come up, just mm-hmm. her clothes. It's like the gods understood what she was doing, and they just took her immediately, body yes. and soul, and they just they just took her because they understood why she jumped. They knew that she was, you know, this was her comeuppance, I suppose, for her. Her betrayal of her, you know, she's, you know, she served the gods and she's like, no, I'm going to go with this guy. It's, uh, yeah, it is almost like she, she ascended in a way. Like they just, they took her and she was gone and 
again, immediately, there it goes. And again, there's there's a little bit of Jonah in that story, I think. Yeah. You know, the it always, you know, it always does. Again, that's a, a story that pops up in myth and religion and uh, folk tales all over the place about the boat or the boats at sea. And someone on the boat has has a secret or they've done something bad and the storm comes and the only way to save them is for one of them to get off and sacrifice themselves or get eaten by a big whale, you know, <laughs> depend, yeah. depending on your story. So it it definitely has precedent and a lot of things in this story and have, have precedent. And uh, it, it's 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 a sad moment. But the minute that the storm rolls in, it's kind of one of those things that's so ingrained into the culture and into the the storytelling you know, part of our brain that we all understand that the minute that rolls in, even if you haven't seen the movie yet, you kind of know she's going to jump in. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's it's not entirely due to foreshadowing either. It's, I mean, they definitely foreshadow that she's going to get her comeuppance for disobeying, you know, leaving her position to serve the gods. But that part, that story of, you know, you're on a boat, boat is in storm, someone jumps off, sea is calm, is so... You know, it's it's something that people get because they've heard it a thousand times before. It's like a flood myth. Everyone has a flood myth, and a lot of play, you know, a lot of cultures and myths and religion have jump off the boat to save your friends myth. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a thing, and it's oh, and it, you know, it doesn't matter if you know it's coming. It's still sad, and you you're like, God, don't do it, but you have to. You know, like the, we get it. You know, we know that it has to happen, just like the character or characters know that it has to happen and it's it is a beautiful moment even though it's really just horribly tragic so then yahara goes back to yamato and he tells otomo what happened and otomo decides to just kill him and then decide okay we're gonna kill prince yamato before he gets back because this is ending right now yeah no more no more excuses we gotta off this guy yeah because he's survived way too long here and uh we need to just get it done and so then they do sort of this ambush. Mm-hmm. Like, and a very effective ambush, it must yeah, be it's said. Like, it's like one of those ambushes from a Western. It did It did feel like a Western. You had the canyon. They're all up there with their arrows and... Not pr- suspecting it, anything. And then all Not suspecting sudden, anything. And it, yeah, he didn't have a... Yeah, he didn't have a lot of men, but mm-hmm. he, it was still a large number of... The, the body count during that final fight must have been through the roof. Because, again, like we said at the beginning, maybe four or five guys tops. Uh, I didn't count, but maybe four or five tops made it back to to Yamato to the village at the end. Mm-hmm. Everybody else got massacred. Yeah, and uh, then the yeah in our great big battle, and it lasts a while, and it feels just like something out of the samurai trilogy. It, it was that's the most samurai moment out of the whole the whole movie. It literally felt like they could have just colorized that, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of slapped it in there. It is epic. It is super epic. It's one of the moments where Ifakube's score really pops out at you too. It does. Yeah, and we'll talk about the score a little bit later as well. But man, that that entire last battle—it's so foreboding because you you have it in your head that it looks like he's gonna go, like he, that's it. This is his last stand, and right. uh, he's gonna not gonna. And then, but you're like, no, he's the hero. He's not gonna die. And then when he delivers that beautiful speech, yes, um, you're like, he can't die now. He's like, that's it. And then mm-hmm. and then he does. <laughs> the pool that he goes to, the little sort of pond mm-hmm. it's yes a, it's a set it's a whole set with the mural behind it even yeah it is a gorgeous set too yeah and then they shoot him with the arrows and and all of a sudden it's like sean bean 
<laughs> I, was, I had the exact that we same all remember thought. from that one movie with the one ring, right? Like, yeah, that one. I don't remember what it was called. It was like a fellow something. I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, Sean, poor Sean Bean in that infamous, that infamous. And again, it's not the first time that um, Mifune has been filled with arrows. I mean, he wasn't filled no. with arrows, but it was, uh, you know, in a movie where somebody gets massacred like that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? He, is, he, got, he got super dead in Throne of Blood when he got shot with... Probably a record number of arrows in cinema history, but he avoided it in this time because this time he had a bunch of people who were willing to stand there and literally get shot for him. They lock arms and and they they locked arms. It's like, wow. That moment was first time I saw that was really, really affected me because it was the same lineup of people that like maybe four minutes earlier had been saying to him, man, we can't wait anymore. We've got to get home. Let's not waste any more time. We have to go home is right there. Let's go. Let's go right now. No more waiting. And then of course, uh, Takeru says, you all can go. I'm staying here. I have, uh, I, I have, I can't go back yet. And they said without blinking, we'll stay with you. Mm-hmm. And it meant their death, of course. And they probably would have been killed had they gone home anyway, but Staying with him definitely meant their deaths. And it, without blinking, they link arms. They stood there and like, a, you know, a wall of <laughs> pure friendship, really. I mean, just just yeah. devotion to this man, respect for this man. And they stood there and took, I don't know, I think the, the one guy probably had about five, six arrows in him by the time he finally fell over. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very, very Sean Bean like. But it was, it's very sad because these you know, we've spent almost three hours with some of these guys, and um, you know, even though some of those soldiers we might not know their names. I mean, I, the one guy who I believe it was he was the one that got filled with arrows. He and I cannot remember his his name, but he's been in a lot of Toho films. He'd probably best be remembered as uh, the um, Infant Island chief in Mothra versus Godzilla with his nice feather hat and his beard. And uh, he was the captain at the beginning of Mothra on the boat that gets wrecked. And he's in, uh, he has, he's a village leader in Varan as well. And uh, he, you know, he has one of those faces that you don't forget. And he was one of the gods too, in um, the God, the, the, you know, the heaven scenes. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who says, yeah, let's not wait anymore. Let's go home. And then immediately says, no, we're going to stay with you. And then he's the one who says, we have to form a wall and save the prince. And he pays for it, but it's a it is a really affecting moment for me. It was a really sad, really really cool, just a great epic samurai killed, moment. Yeah, and as soon as we, he's killed, we get the yes, he, and so he turns into the white bird. And yes, the white bird is endowed with special powers by the kami who favor him, and that's mm-hmm. and he uses those powers to do what he gets back at them. Oh boy, does he! And yes, that and the volcano that erupts. Yeah, which we, there isn't an actual volcano that erupted. It's not. No, of course not. Yeah, by there or anything. It's just. Yes. The, the volcano kills the traitors along with the flood that's caused by the. Essentially, it's like a sage. Yeah, like it the, really is. It's like it, the, it's yeah. It, it's, it's like the it's like you're below the. It's like if you're below the water and you just tip the entire lake. Yeah, water comes out the one side, but yeah, um, and the sage is when wind uh, is blowing so much that that the water is actually onto one side. But and then Yakumo and Azumi reunite at the end, and we tie up that mm-hmm. part of the story, and then yeah. we see our rainbow bridge again, and the white bird, and it is flying up to the higher celestial plane, and then glory, glory, hallelujah, movie's over. Movie's over, and what a note to end on! That final shot of the bird flying towards yeah. the uh, 
a man, it's 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 emotional. Like it's one of those moments that made me stop and think. I'm, you know, I'm was, you know, I, I live in the 21st century in America, and this moment is affecting me in a very deep way. How would it have been to have to, you know, to actually be Shinto and to see this moment dramatized before my eyes? This this beautiful moment, you know, ultimately led to the country I live in. You know what I mean? It's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like watching a movie where you see the Declaration of Independence being signed. You know what I mean? But much less religious. You know what I mean? It's 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 com- it's kind of comparable to that to that in a way, not entirely, but there's not a a whole lot of comparison, I guess you could say. Again, the Ten Commandments is a big one. Seeing the the Red Sea part, for example, if you're if you're a Christian, is a big moment. Seeing the burning bush in that film, if you're Christian, is a big moment. Seeing uh, Yamato Takeru reincarnated as the the pure white bird, uh, who then ascends to the highest heavenly plane as a reward for you know him being such a good person, and his sacrifice and his purity and the fact that he's been favored by the gods ultimately leading a people to to follow him, um, and his ways like to, to be a part of that religion and to see that happen, you know that's something I I won't get. I can sympathize with it. I can empathize with it. I can, I can seek to understand it and I can, and I can get it, but there's always going to be that one bit of set separation there, time and space that will keep me from knowing exactly what it would have been like to sit in a theater in 1959 and see this moment occur on screen and so beautifully done and so respectfully done. But even yeah, so, this, this movie it, does have a lot yeah, of respect. It does. But even so without that context, it affected me. Um, I tend to be a very empathetic movie viewer, and I, I like to try to get into the headspace of, of character. I think a lot of people are like that. They get into the headspace of the characters and the, you know, the the culture that created it, and especially from an American perspective, looking at a, a Japanese film in this instance, there's a lot of that going on. And um, this film is one of the more very densely Japanese films that. I've seen, and I think most people would sure. see if they saw it. You know, it's it's about as Japanese as a film can get because it's literally a. It's called the birth of Japan. You know, it's about Japan. It's about the religion. It's about the gods. I like that I can watch it and I I can get it because again, even though it's that Japanese filter is on there, the you know the gods and the characters they're universal. You know, yes. you can see you can see a little bit of the Olympian uh, pantheon in the Japanese deities. You can see demigods from Greek and Roman mythology and, uh, and you know, even Indian a little mythology, bit of, it, yeah. and, yes, and, and lots of Indian mythology in there too, in the characters, in the hero, you know, you've got, you know, a hero's journey in a way, you've got your love and your, your loss and your pain. And it's a, it's a beautiful, like the story itself, but definitely the film is a beautiful reminder that these things are all very connected and it doesn't really matter what culture one comes from. You can sit and you can watch that story. You can hear this story, experience it. And even though some of the finer details might escape you, you still get it. That's one of the great strengths of this film. The part with Yakumo and Azami uh, and, and the issue with class and everything. I yes. was looking this up and trying to figure out what was going on with that. And mm-hmm. there wasn't actually much going on changing w- with class and uh, caste at the, in the first or second century at this time in Japan. It really wasn't until uh, Confucianism... Uh, came around, and that was when the class, the caste system, got a little bit more rigid. But uh, th- th- I've not seen much historical evidence for anything happening that that actually changed at that time. 
but I think it was just uh, it's in the movie for a reason I'm sure which is to get just to drive that point home and yeah the prince kind of comes off as uh, egalitarian when he's presented with that problem because he marries them himself and yeah. he says, forget, forget all this. But I don't believe there was any much of a change going on at that time in the class system that this would have actually happened. But it, that's the kind of background on that. I, I want to go back to the music, though, too. Oh, yes. And we get this theme over and over and over again, the melody. It's an F, G, E flat, D C sharp, C natural, and, and it's the it's the melody that's played uh, pretty frequently. It's played in the the opening titles, and then about two hours and sixteen minutes into the movie, when they're in the uh, Ainu part of uh, the area by Mount Fuji, there, uh, that's when it's being played on one instrument, like the the the, uh, the woodwind uh, flute, yes, you know, kind of um, instrument, and that's where you really get it, uh, hear it on its own. Mm-hmm. Expressed, but it's very beautiful. Uh, this is it is. maybe one of the best Ikafube soundtracks I've heard in a while. It's really I, good. I I agree, and one of the things that I really really love about, like I'm a huge Ikafube devotee. Um, I I I love this man's music, and I've I've said it before, uh, but I, I, it bears repeating here. I've, I've I say this often that if you were somehow able to like crack my DNA open like an eggshell, if Akube's music would just come thundering out at full volume. This man's this man's music is like so incredibly precious to me as just a person, and I love. I, I there's not a single score he's ever done that I I don't think is incredible, and this one. Is just, it's fascinating on a number of levels. Not only is it musically brilliant, I mean, it's Ifakube, so of course it's going to be just stellar. It allowed him to really, like, his music is very, even in some of the subtle ways, like if you watch a Godzilla film, for example, there's a, it's very Japanese music and he was he was educated a lot of his musical education actually didn't come from japan it came from europe but there's definitely a very strong japanese bent in his stuff and uh he was very inspired by ainu uh music yes in 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 and so you can see a lot of that come through here and one of the things about the score that i love is that it um one of the things that i love about ifakube scores in general is the fact that he reused so much and how his themes and his musical motifs would permutate over time into something else or just get reused in general. You know, with the, some of the more obvious examples being uh, Kishimai, his World War II march being turned into the, eventually into the Monster Zero march many, many yeah. years later after going through, you know, several films worth of permutation. And Varan's theme becoming Rodan's theme. Uh, some of the background music in Battle Matter Space became King Ghidorah's dun 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 theme, and like it, the list goes on and on. And fans know all of these, but the Three Treasures doesn't really have a lot of moments where you're like, oh, that was from an earlier movie. But it does have a couple of interesting moments where I heard it and I thought that comes up later. That's a that's a piece of music that comes up later. There's a there's a moment. Um, like the the choral, like you didn't hear a lot of choral music with Ifakube. He was very band, you know, right. he orchestra oriented. But some of the moments with the choir reminded me very much. And there isn't one moment that is exactly. It, I don't know if it, I don't remember if it includes the choir or not, but it is absolutely exactly the Destroyer Requiem. Mm. Of it's very subtle, but if you listen to it, you can hear um da 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 da, da that moment in the soundtrack and then the choral singing reminded me a lot of the requiem with the choral singing 
Um, very subtly, you can hear uh, the King Kong versus Godzilla main theme. Dun, 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 dun. You can hear it a little bit. Um, and some of the dancing scenes, there's a little, and it's more subtle than the other ones, but a little bit of the Odo Highland dance from the original Godzilla is in there. I knew there was something in that dancing music. I didn't. It's very, very subtle. It was something, yeah. But it's definitely there. And that's really the only thing that I picked up on that carried over from something that was, that I, at least I had heard uh, previously Mm -hmm. outside of a lot of his, like, you know, just within his film compositions and things like that. Like, and those reuses of things. And I know there there are probably some people that are like, oh, he just reused that. Well, I I think that's one of his strongest suits. And the fact that you can, it's one of the most fun things about being an Ifakube fan is you can pick out the, these little themes. And even if they're, even in their very subtlest form, like this film, it's not smacking you in the head with, oh, that's Rodan's theme, but where's Rodan? It's just Varan. You know, it's, it's very, it's a lot more subtle in this, but the score stands on its own really, really beautifully. It marries the, it marries with the images really, really well for starters. And it's so uniquely, and I mentioned this before, like there's a lot of Japanese-ness in his music. This film's score throws caution to the wind. It is a Japanese style score through and through. It's got classical instrumentation and traditional instrumentation. And it, it fuses that with the epic grandeur of, um, again, going back to the, the 10 commandments and uh, like, you know, music like that, where it's just this huge sound. And, uh, if always went for a huge sound, even though most of the time he didn't have big orchestras to work with. And I'm not sure off the top of my head, I don't recall if his orchestra was bigger for this film than it was for something like, say, The Mysterians or Battle in Outer Space, which was, you know, a little bit later in the same year, 1959. But it sounds bigger. And he could he, he could command a big sound from a small group of musicians, but I don't know if it actually was bigger or not. But whatever he was doing, he did it good because um, the soundtrack for this film is magnificent and i mean this this was a huge film for toho obviously and like we talked about all the familiar faces and we talked about you know they got inagaki to direct it and it was you know it was toho's 1000th film you know it was it was a big big film for them and they they it was shot in beautiful color toho scope if you're going to shoot a movie like that in 1959 at toho in japan if akube is going to score your movie you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's exactly. that that's it made sense, and uh, it's just a magnificent score. It's just absolutely magnificent, and I actually don't own it on its own yet. It's one of the few Ifakube movie scores I that I don't have a copy I of. Like it actually too. Yeah, the melody keeps showing up a lot, and it doesn't matter what part of the music it is. You keep hearing it. Is that it's incorporated uh, into the back F, a lot? G, e flat, yeah, D D sharp mm-hmm. or D and then C sharp C natural, and yeah. The the parts that I thought were the most different that I had heard out of Ikafube was the it was it's actually two cues of it, and it's the parts that uh, feature the emperor, and you have mm. this sort of string instrumental little background sort of underscoring it, and then uh, I believe it's a, a woodwind of some kind is playing over the and that's playing the main melody, and yes. it's 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 kind of un, it's understated. But it's very perfect for what it totally fits to what is going on on the screen. But I, th- I thought the the parts where the where they feature the emperor towards more towards the beginning of the story, in the yeah. first half, uh, I thought that was really brilliant. It sounded just oh, I think great. so. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Like you know, a good theme 
when you can you know give it to different instruments and you can play it and you don't get tired of it like yeah, and if you put it together can, it's almost like a symphony it is absolutely if you were to take all of those individual elements instrument a instrument b instrument c d however many and put them together which kind of does happen at the end of the film during the volcano scene and then when he ascends to the highest celestial plane you get the feeling like all of the individual elements of the score are kind of coming together to form this massive grand send off for our hero. And you know, it's the end, but it's also the beginning of something beautiful. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a, it's a great moment and it does kind of feel like everything was building up to it musically as well. And that's a, that's a brilliant compositional trick is being able to take those elements and musically build to, to an ending that suits the music but it also helps the story. Uh, some of the best soundtracks of all time do that, where they'll have a theme or themes, and they're reincorporated using different instruments. And sometimes they're they're shifted between major and minor to you know, and their tempos are changed. You know, you can take like one of the best examples is um, Max Steiner's score for the original King Kong. If yeah. you listen to that, like Andero's da 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 theme that plays, it can shift from fast to slow, minor to major. It can be played as a romantic theme. It can be played as an intense theme. It can be played, um, there's the moment where they're going down the rope and it descends, but it's also really intense. And um, like, that's a beautiful, that's a, it's a very simple melody. It's just a few notes, but it's done very, very effectively. And all of it starts to build towards the very, very end of the, the original Kong, the tragic ending on the Empire State Building. The music throughout the film builds you up to that point, that tragic moment, just as much as the visuals the visuals do. And that's a brilliant use of music. And Ifakube did that very, very well. But like most of the time when like fan, the kaiju fans like you and I will watch a film, it's more about watching the themes clash each other yeah. like a ba- like a monster battle and not so much develop. You know what I mean? Like the themes do develop, but it's more... Like, you know, when you sit down and watch it, when you're enjoying the movie, it's more about seeing Mothra's theme fight Godzilla's theme as the two monsters are fighting on screen. So the music clashes as the monsters clash, which is a brilliant move. And, you know, there are elements where, you know, different movies where you'll see a a theme get, you know, developed into something that builds up to something else, but never quite as strongly, I think, at least in a lot of the films that I've seen, as it does in The Three Treasures, where you have this one repeating theme, and then eventually it all just crashes into each other, and it complements that last few minutes of the movie just so beautifully. It's amazing to watch. So getting to our tokusatsu moments, right at the beginning, we have our white smoke, and our stars in the background, and that's that's our mural, and we have a, and that's where we get to uh, Takamagahara, and the set yes. is the rocks, and then the rocks have this sort of gold on the top of them. One of the rocks breaks open, and then we get our dry ice, our CO two effects on the ground on the set with all of our gods first appearing, and then we get the ten gods created, and then as it's building up, and we get our, mm-hmm. then we get that nebulous liquid stuff, the bubbling liquid with the swirling. Uh, movement in in it it's like red blue and brown like all these different colors it looks like boiling paint like it's very interesting and that's that's like the nebulous stuff that the earth is made out of before there's uh, any 
land. Yeah, they they reuse at least in the subs they use the the, the phrase without um it's the earth isn't firm yet. Yes. You know, it's not firm. It's it's this goop and the the goop, the multicolored swirling effect really reminded me of uh Ultra Q and Ultraman, the very very beginnings. So it like where the the paint swirls and then it's played in reverse to form the title. So I wonder if that was something they were playing with, because this was obviously seven years before Ultra Q and Ultraman mm-hmm. came out. But using paint for effect was something that Subaraya and his crew did often. You know, they, they basically went from experimenting, and they were still experimenting, but when you watch it, it feels like you're watching something that a pro has been doing for decades. Um, like yes, if, they they the refined mis- it pretty yeah. quickly. They really, really did. Um, like the Mysterians in, in Battle Matter Space is something that that's an example I use often. If you look at the optical effects in the Mysterians with the zaps and the bolts of lightning and the the explosions, they're cool. They're, they're kind of rougher than the future beam effects would be. You know what I mean? Because they, they hadn't really done that yet. They hadn't done lasers and and uh, you know lightning bolts and things like that to that extent. And then when you jump ahead two years to Battle in Outer Space. The optical effects, the lightning and the the lasers and the, the explosions, they look absolutely gorgeous. And so it didn't take them a lot of time. Once they had a technique that they wanted to experiment with, they they just went for it. Like they, they there's so many tricks in this film, and the paint is like the different applications of paint. I'm mean, I'm not sure if that was paint, like that they were swirling, but it sure looked like it. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what. Why, honestly, not sure what that was. I'm not sure exactly how they did that. But then, the primordial island that they've created and it has that pillar sort of that's there. Yes, that's its own set. And then you notice that there's bubbling in the, in the water that's on the ground in places like these little puddles. And then the puddles yeah. are actually bubbling. And they built that whole little set just for that, and for them to when they walk around the island and meet. But it's in, it's interesting that that they went that far. It looks really good. It's it has this it really really primordial. Is really it's almost like the rite of spring is going on here too. It it does. Similar it does. That. Then thirty nine minutes in, we get our superimposed fire on the the gods mm-hmm. when the when the uh, flaming arrows are shot at them, and then yeah, for, and then for a, like a little bit, like a second or two, we get there's a model and it's a man falling out of the tree. Mm-hmm. So they actually built a model just for that. They just uh, built a guy and stuck him up in the tree. Yeah, yeah. the the super yeah the superimposition in this film is actually pretty darn good. Uh, yeah. In nineteen in ni- this this year nineteen fifty nine was the year um, that he Tsuburaya and his crew introduced the uh, Toho Versatile system, which was a uh, widescreen specific optical printer. And so that's why like they, if you watch p- films from this period all the way up, the optical printing just starts getting better and better. Cause eventually like Tsuburaya got frustrated and purchased one of only two Oxbury optical printers in the world at the time. And Disney owned the other one. Yeah. One and in so and one in Japan, right. That's right. And he, he bought the other one with a great sum of money, which is why, you know, at a certain point in the series, like specifically when you start getting to maybe Monster Zero era and then from then the, his Ultraman, the Ultra Q and Ultraman going forward, the optical printing and the compositing, especially when the like black and white Ultra Q just looked really, really good. This was kind of the beginning of that. So you see a lot of superimposition that's kind of much more sophisticated than what you might have got in, say, the Mysterians. Yeah, 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 literally just a couple years. And it's, again, like that kind of optical um, 
compositing of different images always worked better in black and white because of the the nature of the thing. But in the three treasures, it just it look again, it just looks like they went from experimenting to being pros in no time at all. And again, we talked about it earlier. The number of tricks they use in this film is insane. Yeah, they use everything in their arsenal for this one. Tsubaraya did win a Film Technique Award for this film. He, he, he had a pile of those things by the time he passed. Oh, um, yeah, he, he did. He won, he won several of those, but he definitely won one for, uh, he definitely won an award for this film for the effects. So one hour in, the, we get our story continuing about the creation, and Suzano, he throws the horse in the midst of Amaterasu, and then mm-hmm. he, she goes inside the cave. And the set of that cave is interesting. They only show it for a short time, but it's like all gold inside. It's mm-hmm. bright. And there's even a little it, fountain on the floor at the very back of it. Yeah. Closely. At the height of the dance that they're trying, when they're trying to get Amaterasu out of the cave, then it flashes like negative a few times. When yeah. When they're in the, in the, at the very height of the, of the dance. And I thought, is this Yoshimitsu Banu that came in here and did this? <laughs> I'm starting to feel like this is hetero, but then it comes right out of it again. But that was a very strange moment. Yeah, at one, it's not something you expect. At one eighteen forty four, we go back to the past, and that's when he's uh, crying. Uh, Susano is crying and dries up everything, and uh, it's they they use a lot of neat uh, effects for that even just that small part, and they show everything, all the water disappearing and drying up, and oh, that looked cool too. And then we have the Yamata no Orochi battle, which is, of course, Yamata no Orochi was the, uh, w- one of the things that brought on King Ghidorah, which was influenced Absolutely. by this, and obviously. And then, and then in this version, the kaiju is 300 meters tall, and that's gigantic. That's then, huge, yeah. yeah. And the puppet, it reminds me, uh, like I said, of Clash of the Titans from 1981, but not stop motion. And the lights are in the eyes. Yeah, yeah. Lights. And that's, that's a very nice touch. And the fight itself is, at, at times it's pretty cool. And then at times it's like, uh, I don't know what they were going for. The parts where he's just standing there and waving the sword, not so much. But other parts, it, <laughs> they, they totally do it. And then superimposition is used uh, yes. quite a bit. And the later part of the battle, they actually have the life-size part of the dragon tail that he's attacking. Yeah. And uh, they actually have blood spurting out of one side of it a little bit. And it's, it's writhing around as he's trying to kill it. And parts of the tail move and parts of it don't. It's like there's almost somebody inside there moving that stuff around. But yeah. it's, it's very nice. I like the, that, the ending part especially. And then he pulls out the sword. It also goes with the, the fight choreography in this movie. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, it's just kind of old school Hollywood, kind of the way stuff worked back then in the, exactly, in the classic yeah. film era. And it's just something you expect. They, nowadays, you know, they have all these fight choreography experts and then they uh-huh. get every, every, you know, every sword fight is ranged and, and done all the way down to every little movement. But then, but, but this is, it, it's what you expect really uh, for, for a movie yeah. that was made at this time. And absolutely, and like you said, you never get to f- see very often an actual guy against a kaiju. Yeah, it's I mean, just, it, it's not. Something it doesn't happen. No. Yeah, the the, but the difference in scale. Do it. 
Yeah, he's like, you believe he can do it. And that's really the thing. Like when you have a, we talked about Fumiko and King Kong versus Godzilla and characters like that. But really, like you you see her running away. You're like, yes, run, because you're going to get killed <laughs> if you stick around. You see Suzano go after this this gigantic gluttonous serpent the length of eight valleys you'd think it you know like your first thought is well if he was a mere mortal it wouldn't be a competition he'd be dead but he's a he's a god and so you fully buy that he can this tiny little guy can fight this giant immense gluttonous eight-headed eight-tailed thing and um the the confrontation itself and i think that's another reason that like those moments don't happen often is that it, it presents special effects problems yeah, it's because yeah. it's definitely challenging. And, you know, like if you look at a lot of other movies where they try to do that, you can see the struggle with the medium that they're working with, with the tokusatsu um, kind of pop up. And there are some beautiful examples like um, um, uh, the major Chujimori writing on Godzilla's spine from Megagirus, uh-huh. which was accomplished with, two or three different techniques superimposition in a big set you know in the water with his spine and that's really well done um you you know we talked about yuki earlier going after space godzilla and that was all done with uh superimposition and uh sometimes really well done like when he's crawling through the through the grass like the grass Mm -hmm. blades were the mat line you know and that was amazing and it looks looks seamless i feel i feel like kawakita-san was showing off a little bit He's, he's like man we can do this those moments are always memorable because they're visually interesting and they don't happen often. And, um, and you know, visually talking about visually interesting. I mean, the Orochi is a beautiful creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a beautiful design. And I mean, it's not a guy in a suit, but there's no, you know, there wouldn't have been a way to do that. It's not, it's proportions no. weren't men in a suit. And I think there's, um, and I don't know if this is anything official or not. This is just me kind of mentioning something I noticed. It's very, like the design, obviously, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's owes a Ghidorah owes a lot to this this character. I mean, definitely for sure, Subaraya wanted to take a little bit of that Orochi magic and put it into the Godzilla universe, and did so remarkably well with with King Ghidorah. But I think there's a lot of Manda in Orochi, yes, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like an eight headed Manda. You know, this mm-hmm. big sea, this big sea snake. They even look similar. I'd say that the heads on Orochi look more more similar to Manda than they do to Ghidorah. Yeah, but um, if there's any kind of direct, like, oh yeah, let's let's eight heads was complicated in 1959. Let's give it one head and, and just make it a big snake, a big dragon in 1963. And then they were like, that's not ambitious enough. Let's go with three heads. You know, that's I'm I'm certain that's not what happened. But it is How interesting. Many heads to, can one yeah. guy in a suit like manage <laughs> exactly so barely even the, the three. Better. Yeah, and that actually that reminds me of something interesting I saw in the credits. I was when I when I most recently watched the film, I saw Soichi Hirose's name in the credits, and it's not a, he's not a, a face most people would recognize, but he played King Ghidorah in Ghidorah the Three Headed Monster and Astro Monster Monster Zero in the suit. I don't. I, I'm assuming he was a stuntman, right? So I'm assuming he was in the back as one of the warriors. I didn't spot him. I tried to find him. He's in there somewhere, mm-hmm. but um. I find that interesting that the guy who would play Ghidorah was in the film, even if he was just an extra or a stuntman in the film that, you know, ha- had the inspiration for that character in it. And um, I mean, the, the, the impact of 
that character goes all the way up to even recently, including the, the not so much the the movie version, but the myth. Um, famously, the, this film was kind of remade in 1994. Not really a remake, but just a readaptation of the tale as Yamato Takiru in 1994. And um, even more recently in Shin Godzilla, the the operation to kill off the well to freeze Godzilla with the coagulant is called uh you know Operation Yashiori, which is yes. named after the named after the sake that they used to drug the Orochi in this story and in this film. And you get to see that happen with eight big barrels of this very apparently very potent sake. Mm-hmm. Um so you could there's a lot of that that continues on. So it's not just the Ghidorah inspiration. Like there's a lot of different tethers that, that can be connected. Um and like the and again back to the just just that that sequence it is a highlight the design is great the the lighting is interesting the moment when he appears when the storm clouds come and the water shoots up and then yeah, this, this cool. the eight heads that was really cool so mm-hmm. definitely a visual effects highlight of the film and uh, just a great moment and I mean it 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 should be because for a lot of people it's the one of the only things they really know about this movie. And it's definitely the thing that makes a lot of, of people interested in seeing it. It definitely was one of the reasons I wanted to see it. And it's one of the main reasons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, like I said before, come for the Kaiju stay for the historical religious spectacle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, I, I do hope there's an opportunity for more, pe- more people to see this movie at some point, not just for that scene, but for the whole movie. But yeah, I, it is, it is a highlight. So. It's, it's something yeah. that just should happen. <laughs> You listening, Criterion? Yeah, <laughs> we, that it seems. I mean, they, how many Inagaki movies alone have they put out? They need to. They need to get. This seems like yeah. They. This is something that would sell. I think so. Criterion, if you're listening, this is fr- friendly suggestion. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, please. Now to the volcano of Mount Fuji uh, erupting. Yeah. That is stunning. It was it was incredible. It was really really incredible. And um, seeing it, you know, it one is reminded of Rodan. One is super duper reminded of Rodan. But uh, it does it does take it up multiple notches from Rodan. And Rodan is you know that that volcano is gorgeous when it goes off at the end of the film and Mount Aso goes off. But you know, to, you know, obviously with Rodan, Toho knew how to do volcanoes you know the volcano in rodan is gorgeous but uh the volcano at the end of the movie is spectacular but i i really love mount fuji in this film and i I find it interesting that the smoke was coming out of the side yeah you know it was looked like it was coming it wasn't coming out of the crater it was coming out of the side just spectacular they they really you know it was it was a different technique too we talked about different techniques earlier they really took it up a notch from from rodan i think and not so much the the eruption with all the the lava that comes later but the the fact that they used that beautiful paint technique yeah where they um yes and it was it starts off this this kind of smoggy gray and then it turns into this brilliant angry red like the gods are angry inside the volcano and they're going to come out after you just just spectacular just spectacular and it reminds me like they, they didn't use that technique a lot but when it was used it was beautiful like the destruction of Mu from Atragon uses that technique oh yeah the uh the volcano at the very beginning of uh latitude zero uses that technique where it erupts and um this this massive amount of material just flies out of the water but of course it's it's sinking into the water but the surface has been reversed and it's a great technique and they, it works really well in the water but they didn't this is one of the only times i've ever seen it used in a japanese film 
where it wasn't an underwater explosion and they didn't use the water. You know, it was just yeah. these beautiful clouds. Um, and that's a technique that's been used all all over the world. Uh, Spielberg's team used it in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the mothership comes down behind the mountain. They used that paint technique. And um, it's it's a lost art now because, you know, you just type a couple things in your computer and you can have you can get started on it. It's got a lovely tactile, you know, practical feel to it. And it's otherworldly, too. It's mesmerizing to the eyes. Yes, yes. Otherworldly, mesmerizing. Oh, it's pretty mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah. It's a a beautiful technique. And again, I I wish it was used, you know, there was still a place for it now in big films, but there just just isn't now. And I wish there was. But it is beautiful because you do get the feeling you're looking at something real because you are looking at something real. You're looking at this... It's beautiful. And I, and again, I mentioned the color change before. That's, that's really cool. But to me, the most interesting visual thing about it, aside from the ethereal kind of otherworldly look of the, the, the paint smoke itself, is the fact that it isn't coming out of the crater at the top of the volcano. And I think that made it look even more interesting. It almost looked like a, a mouth breathing fire. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen any other film where Mount Fuji or a, a volcano of any kind erupts and it comes out of the... Like, right below the lip like that. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I'm not sure why that choice, but it was, it definitely looked cool. I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, are we going to see like an t- entire chunk of the top of Mount Fuji just blow off and it just gets shorter. <laughs> and that's what, and that's why there's a crater there, you know, but I was, you know, I, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Just seeing it smoking and not so much erupting, but just, just sitting there like this ever-present thing and yes. you know Mount Fuji is Mount Fuji is very much that even in Japan today I mean they call it Fujisan because they 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 love that this you know it has a very very great significance to the people of that of, of Japan that mountain Fugisly. is deeply deeply important to them culturally you know it's it is a character it's a person it's Fujisan and um this movie, like, it's it's one of those those things where the mountain is almost like a character. You've the like Godzilla fans alone have seen that film that that mountain, and God knows how many movies. It is almost a character, even without our culture, you know, a lack of cultural connection that an American would have to seeing it in a Japanese film. But in this film, it feels like you're being introduced to it. Yeah, and I remember uh, in uh, Gamera versus Gauss, Fuji erupts. Yes. And that, and that was a good eruption too. That was a really good eruption. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it holds such significance. And then there's one of my favorites actually is this grassland scene. Yeah, they, they even show the little wild boar very briefly. And it looks mm-hmm. like it's a puppet, or like a. Little, I am. Um, yeah, uh, I imagine it was. It reminded me of the boar puppet from Frankenstein Conquers the World. Actually, I mean, it's yeah. d- definitely not the same prop, not nearly the same scale. But um, it just the fact that they, it, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't an actual boar. I, th- I think the deer in the beginning might have been a real deer. But the horse wasn't real and uh, the boar wasn't real. But um, it was, it looked to me like a puppet and then maybe somebody was kind of making it wiggle, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> from, from underground a little bit just to kind of give it a little bit of struggle as it was, as it was dying. But a lot of dead animals in this movie. Scene, and that's just a nice series of effects because it yeah, looks yeah. like we got like some models going on that are being uh, set on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks mm-hmm. very convincing though. And there's, and some of it, there's a mural behind it at the same time. 
Uh, yes. And then when he uses the flint to create the smaller fire, that is, I believe, a superimposition, but it kind of looks like an animation too. But the when he starts yeah, when he starts to light it and it that flash, that orange and yellow flash comes out, that was an optical that was an optical animation element that came in. And again, it reminded me of the Ten Commandments with the pillar of fire, which yeah. was cell which was cell animated. Um and I love I love moments like that in an older film because the first time I saw the Ten Commandments, I was really young, and the fire, you know, it was a cartoon. And to my my young eyes, that's what it was. It looked like a cartoon, and I was like, yeah. "What's this cartoon doing in here?" And uh, it's kind of like that moment in um, Forbidden Planet when the the id monster shows up, yes. and uh, all you can see is its outline. And it was it was animated by Disney yeah. animators, so right. it was it kind of looked like that. And it's subtle in this in this film, those optical animation moments. It's not nearly like the Tower of Fire from the Ten Commandments, but. It's certainly, it was definitely animated and it like moments like that give an otherworldly sense, I think, because it almost feels like it's not real, but it's happening, you know, like moments like that are really interesting visually. Yeah. And then we get uh, the storm scene with the ships and the tornado is only shown a little bit, but it's like, it's literally a tornado. It's a black rotating tornado, very reminiscent of Wizard of Oz. Very yeah, Just very Wizard of Oz like, and the yeah, it's it looks really good. It's, it's mm-hmm. scary yeah. looking too. It does. It's it's dark and it's amazing. Like that scene is dark anyway, and to have this even darker thing coming at you, really really effective. Lastly, the the whole ending action sequence after uh, Prince Yamato is killed and he turns into the bird and the bird is an effect too. And then mm-hmm. the volcano is just epic. We've got the volcano the is... tricks needed to uh, pull this scene off. And right as soon as he dies, we get a ton of CO2 effects. It just pours in all this fog. And then the bird, that's an animation. Yes. The bird, the bird was, um, it's kind of similar. It really, and again, like the the close, the more close up scenes of the bird reminded me of the the same technique that was used at the end of uh, Godzilla versus the Sea Monster when Mothra flies to Infant Island. Yeah. That last shot where she's in a black silhouette and she's flapping. It could have like it could very easily have been the same animation. You know what I mean? It was that similar, and it was you know the bird was so far away and so brilliantly white for that scene that um you know any details didn't really need to be there. It was mostly just a silhouette and there were some details in there and it was really beautifully animated to the point where looking at it, there were a couple of moments where it looked like a a real bird flapping and they just kind of moved it around the image, but it was, it was animated and it was was just stunning. Just legitimately stunning. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of composites going on in this where the film is split and there's one thing going on on one side and another thing going on on the other side. And you can sort of see the, the little uh, line in between it sometimes, yeah. but sometimes not. And yeah, sometimes you it, can, but a lot of times yeah. you can. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take away from the movie, but it's just the technique, but it is. I, I really like composites. Uh, there was a, the ending of the birds, like the final shot in that. It, I, yes. Numerous pieces of film all spliced together. And, and, and it, it really that. was. And, and it, this is sort yeah. of that same thing. You're putting the, the landslides uh, that's above, and then you have the troops running below, and they're running away. And the, the part where the ground splits apart and mm-hmm. the soldiers fall into it, that part's awesome. That, that was, was so an good. Imp- 
impressive set. I mean, I've seen a lot of movies where the ground splits apart and it doesn't look nearly as good as <laughs> that one moment. The uh, all of the land, the landslides and the lava consuming everyone reminded me of um, uh, One Million Years BC, Ray Harryhausen's uh, Solo Hammer mm. contribution, uh, which was a remake of the 1940s film, which was One Million BC, and both of those films end with major volcano eruptions and uh, you know the ground opens and the actors get swallowed up and um there are a couple of shots in the original one the black and white one where the lava comes down that are really good and i think that film did get get nominated for best special effects when it came out the original one and then harryhausen's of course takes it up to another level and the the ending where the the two clans are consumed in the lava and the the ground opens up and they fall in and it's it's a lot like this it's a lot like this but um, done, you know, I'm trying to remember what year that was. 1967, I think, was when the One Million Years BC came out. So this was eight, would have been eight years earlier. And it looks just as good, if not better. I mean, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's really cool. It's one of those visceral moments where you can kind of feel the ground rumbling while you're watching the movie. And then we get uh, some parts where the lava goes right over them as they're yes. running. And, and that reminded me of the, uh, there was a scene in... Um, Godzilla raids again, actually, where they're in the subway yeah. station and the water comes. Same kind of thing, only this... That uh, was similar, this, uh, yeah. This looks better, and it's in mm-hmm. color, and it's all this nice orange uh, lava that's going on. But it reminded me of that scene in uh, in that movie. And yeah. it's, it's really... It looks great, though. The, and the trees falling, that, that looks mm-hmm. really good, too. And there's there are some models that are used for this, obviously, and but the the models and the actual real surroundings that they're in when they're outdoors, it, all of this is it's it's meshed together, so it really feels continuous. Like it's not like it oh, does. this is one thing over here, and then we're showing this other thing that's completely different. like they they were able to meld everything together quite well. And, it, and then they the, really really did. And then the lake and it and it floods them. That's when we get our sort of Ten Commandments. Moment is when all these guys are getting flooded by the water as they're running uh, through and, they're, and they aren't able to escape. The guy gets caught under the tree and the water gets him too. That part's cool. The, the, that was cool. The ending is, is really epic. I really like it. And it's, oh, yeah. It's a special. This whole thing's a very special movie effect wise, but it's, it's, it's really pretty. They spend a lot of time on it and. You know, we don't we don't have all that many years left in in the the era of truly great classic Japanese film. You know, everybody talks about 1964 as the the year, uh, yeah, where, where everything changed. Uh, where we where in, in this in this podcast uh, this season, it, it's when we switch to Dogura that things change. But yeah, it, exactly. Like Pre 1964, post 1964. But this is just uh, one of those movies that's in the cream of the crop. Uh, mm-hmm. the tokusatsu movies that were made during this very crucial uh, era in the yeah. post war. Yeah, they they don't they don't I said it before, they don't make them like this anymore and that's that's in terms of just like the grand spectacle kind of a film like this and the spectacle the, films the, are really big in the late 50s early 60s. Yes. Sure. And with all these giant sets and all these different effects being used and all these major you know combinations of different effects and all, you know, big names and even if they weren't, you know, even if they weren't in it that all like Akira Takarada's in this movie you know mm-hmm. I mean he was he, he you know his his star hadn't risen as high as it ultimately would yet but he is he's in it and he was still you know people knew who he was in 1959 and I mean he didn't he had two lines but he's in it and you know 
Takashi Shimura is in it for maybe four minutes before he gets stabbed. And um, like everybody was in this and the effects are beautiful and, and a huge amount the, of extras. Oh, the amount of extras like that last the last shot where they're all following the bird. I, I was really tempted mm-hmm. to stop it, pause it and just start counting tiny people dots and just see how many people were in that sequence. Um, it's some of those scenes, 100 plus extras had to have mm-hmm. been and. You know, and I'm sure I'm sure there are probably some familiar faces in there. I um, I did see, like I said before, I did see Suichi Hirose's name, one name that I did not see in the credits. And if it's there, I, I didn't see it and you'll have to forgive me. But I, I was looking for Nakajima mm-hmm. because he was, you know, he was obviously a, a stuntman as well. And I didn't see his name in the credits. If he's in the film, he's not credited. But there were so many extras in this film and so many stunt people, so many warriors that if he wasn't in the film, I'd be surprised. I saw Katsumi yeah. Tezuka as well. Um, and mm-hmm. Katsumi Tezuka, of course, shared the role in the Godzilla suit in the first film. And he was also Ang- Anguirus in Godzilla Raids Again. And um, there's footage of him getting into a Mega Nulon suit. There's stills of that. So he, he popped up a bunch of other times. So he was definitely an extra in there somewhere. But if Nakajima was there, I didn't. I didn't see his name and I didn't I didn't see his face, but I'd be shocked given the number of extras and people that he wasn't involved in some way. If he like, I, I don't know. I'll have to look that up. OK, that concludes part two. And now we will move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. And obviously for this, the choice is very simple, uh, and that is choose the related topic as Shinto, and it's because it's uh, self-explanatory. It's because it pairs with the subject of this movie. Uh, It is a religious epic after all. First, I want to go into the story of Prince Yamato, some of the stuff that uh, is not discussed in the movie. He's the son of Emperor Keiko, who's the 12th emperor of Japan. Prince Yamato is also the father of Emperor Chue, which is the, who is the 14th emperor of Japan. And so he is not only the son of an emperor, but he's, the, he's also a father of an emperor. He composed the first Sadoka, which is a poem that goes 577-577. So he is known for composing the very first one of that type of Japanese poem. Prince Yamato's famous poem, his most famous poem that he wrote is Yamato, most exalted of lands, within the green hedges of nestled mountains, hidden, how beautiful is Yamato. So that is the poem that he composed. That's beautiful. The original story that uh, is in, I believe, is the Kojiki. The, the part at the end is different than in the movie. He made a god angry when he blasphemed at it, and then the god cursed him. And when he died, his soul changed into a bird. But that's what happens in, this, in the actual story, is he blasphemes a god, and then he is cursed with a disease, and he becomes ill. He is entombed at Ise, at the Mausoleum of the White Plover, which a plover is a type of bird. And so that is, and then they had the, there's a very nice picture of a statue of him uh, at that uh, location, that mausoleum. And that's some of the, a little bit more about Prince Yamato that's uh, interesting. So getting into more about Shinto, 
is the I'll give just background on the kami because the kami are a very big deal. They are spirits of a place or a force of nature. Lots of things. Mountains, rivers, forests, trees, rocks, animals, weather like wind. Uh, some of the kami are based in text, but some are also built on traditions and customs. And this goes all the way back to the Jomon period uh, in uh, much more ancient Japan. And some people are also defined as kami, and war dead are also made divine. And that is when, uh, for instance, the Yasukuni Shrine, that is when uh, a whole bunch of souls spirits were put into that shrine of the war dead. There are a lot of objects and people who are kami, who possess unique or unusual qualities of some sort. And like it's certain types of trees are more likely to uh, be instilled with a kami. And, and that's the reason that, that that happens. Kami can be love... Oh, kami can love and nurture when you respect them, but they can become, uh, but they can cause disharmony and destruction or bad fortune if they're disrespected or if they're ignored. And that goes to why you have to appease them. And that's why when you take something, something from the earth, uh, from nature, like when you go fishing and you take the fish out, then you give thanks to the kami of that body of water. The kami are invisible. They're at rituals when you ask for a blessing, they're in natural phenomena, and they live in sacred places. But they're also mobile, and, and they don't necessarily stay in one place. They also all have a job, so to speak, of their own. They have a function. There are also various delineations of kami. They're not all kami are created equal. There are what are called the amatsu kami, or the heavenly deities, or the major kami. And in general, they are the higher level gods. And those are the ones that you sort of think about when you think about Roman or Greek gods. Zeus, Poseidon, etc. These sort of upper Gods, And then there are also the Kunitsu Kami, and they are the gods of the earthly realm. And then there are also the Yorozu no Kami, or countless Kami. So there's a lot to talk about with, with just about the aspects of Kami in this. It's a, it's a very deep, uh, very big topic to tackle, too. There are also seven lucky gods. Uh, and they, those are uh, well-known in Japan. Uh, one is Benzaiten, which is the goddess of words, music, eloquence, speech, and knowledge. There's also the Bisha Monten, which is the god of fortunate warriors. And uh, he also punishes criminals. There is Daikokuten, or Daikoku, which is the god of harvest, Wealth also can be the god of the kitchen slash household. Ibisu, or uh, Hiroku originally, is the first child of Izanagi and Izanami, and he is known as the laughing god. Uh, there is Fukuru Kuju, which is the god of wisdom and longevity. There is Hote, which is the laughing Buddha, the god of contentment and abundance. There is Jirojin, the god of longevity, and also 
Kishi Joten, which can replace uh, one of the longevity gods, which is known as the goddess of happiness, fertility, and beauty. Another term I ran into is the Kanagara, and that is the way of the expression of the kami. And that is more about the natural order. It's about how you should live. It's about ethics more than it is about following a list of specific rules or commandments. It's about purity, sincerity, and honesty. So it's about honest relationships with people. And through this process, that's where some of the Japanese focus on consensus comes from, is is this idea Mm. of ethics and having honest relationships with people. Another uh, term that I ran into is nakaima, and it's about how the universe has no beginning or end. And you should live each moment in life fully, meaning that you put on your best face, you be honorable, and that you make the most of that day and make it meaningful. Yeah. Regarding the Tori gates, they are a kami conduit. The gate signifies the entrance into a sacred space. So you bow at the Tori gate and there are many different styles of these gates. There's tons of different styles, and they all mean certain things. The Tori gate in the banner for this show has a kaiju on the other side of the gate, and that's where that comes from. You're entering a gate between the normal and the spiritual slash fantastic. And when in kaiju or tokusatsu movies, there is a Tori gate that is destroyed, like in... Ghidorah, the first Ghidorah, when uh, Ghidorah actually just mm-hmm. all out destroys uh, this uh, shrine uh, and, and the gate. Yeah, there's nothing left of it. <laughs> yes, and then the Mysterians, where uh, additionally a gate is uh, completely swallowed up by the uh, yes. the cave-in uh, of the village and when the village is destroyed. And when Tori gates are destroyed like this, it signifies spiritual distress. Like it, there's a specific actual... Mm meaning behind that because you don't want to see these gates destroyed because that's an actual spiritual problem. So that's yeah. Something, something bad supernatural is going to happen. Yes. Yeah. It's a bad, uh, pretension. And during three eleven, when that disaster happened, there were a lot of shrines and, uh, Tory gates that were destroyed. It, uh, there yeah. were a lot of, uh, sacred spaces that were damaged. Shinto literally means the way of the gods. That is the actual Japanese translation of that. And the three treasures that are in the movie are the mirror, the jewel, and the sword. And those are our three items. Shinto is a Yamato-centric form of history. So it's more personal to a lot of the Japanese because of the continuity between the gods and the Japanese people. It's an interrelation. It traces the imperial family back to divine origin. It sets up the emperor as a descendant of the gods, particularly Amaterasu. It traces directly back to the sun goddess, because the first emperor is the grandson of Amaterasu's grandson, is how that works. Interesting. Yeah. So the, the way that this works is every person in... Japan is special because they descended from the gods and their ancestors descended from the gods. Therefore they did. So there's all an interrelation. And so it's not like in Christianity, for instance, slash Judaism, where 
God created the earth and then God created humans and the humans are not God. You know, there's a clear delineation there. And in, yeah. in this case, it's not. It's all a line. It's all continuous. Human beings in Shinto, human beings are fundamentally good. And evil is actually caused by evil spirits. And, and so the, yes. it's a little bit more of a uh, trusting religion in that it, it, it doesn't think that you're a tabula rasa, blank slate or anything, uh, and it doesn't think you're naturally bad either. So it's a, it's a different way to look at that too. The focus on purity comes from wanting to find a peace of mind and good fortune rather than the whole right-wrong, forbidden-punishment dynamic. So doing good deeds makes things more pure, and doing bad things makes things more impure, and then cleansing is necessary when there is impurity. One reason why Japan is a pretty clean place is the historical emphasis on purity and cleanliness. That's definitely yeah. true. Shinto priests conduct rituals to purify locations, and this is important still today. The rites of the purification are referred to as hare. If someone is killed on the grounds of a shrine, that is a very, very big deal, and a purification ceremony is necessary. And this is called misogi, which is purification. Before entering a shrine, like we said, we wash the hands, and then you wash the mouth with the clean and running water, yeah. and then the shrines are often, uh, there are places for this uh, near all of the shrines. And that is what's happening at 27 and a half minutes into the movie, when Oto Tachibana is in the river, and when Prince Yamato is in the waterfall. It is a cleansing uh, ritual, mm -hmm. which is very cool. It's really cool to see that, and see it on that, on that, that scale. You know, the it's one thing to dip a ladle into, you know, a little thing of water. And it's another to literally be out in nature and stand under the waterfall and then do your ritual. So it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful to see it in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The line of emperors in Shinto goes back all the way to Amaterasu no Mikami, as I said. And that means yes. the great kami shining in heaven. And that is also where the land of the rising sun comes from, is her. Uh, the goddess descends, uh -huh. or the goddess never descends to earth, just as the sun does not fall to earth. She also rules over the other kami. The rainbow bridge that the deities used collapsed, and that ending of that rainbow bridge is in the isthmus that is west of Kyoto. So that's actually where that supposedly ended. Interesting. Now, uh, Ninigi is a very important person because that is the grandson of Amaterasu who went to Earth to rule after her son, Amano Oshihomimi, refused to go. She gave her grandson, Ninigi, three treasures. And that was the mirror, the sword, and the jewel. And these three objects became the three imperial regalia of Japan. Now, the way that Amaterasu got the sword was is, is that Suzano, he gave the sword, after he got it out of Yamata no Orishi, he gave the sword to Amaterasu as a way to console her, to repay her for him getting kicked out of heaven, because that's what happened after... Yeah, he, uh, to, say he, to say he's sorry. Yes, yes essentially. <laughs> sorry, sorry about the horse yeah. thing. So Ninigi is the imperial family's ancestor. 
Then Ninigi married a younger daughter of a family. She was beautiful but weak, and he married her instead of the uh, stronger, older daughter. And so this is the explanation of why so many emperors don't live as long. is because Ninigi married a woman who was beautiful but weak. Then Ninigi had three sons. The younger brother, whose name was Hohodemi, married the daughter of the sea god Ohuwata Tsumi. The daughter was named Toyotama Bimi. He returned to his brother and made his brother submit to him, since the sea god had given him two powerful jewels, one to make water rise and one to make water fall. Then, after she was pregnant, she changed into a sea monster that looked like a shark. He returned to her home and had her younger sister come for the child. The younger daughter then married the child and gave birth to four sons. The youngest son was Toyu Mikenu, and he became Emperor Jimu Tenu, the first emperor of Japan. He went from Kyushu to Yamato province, and he wed a descendant of Suzano, who was a great-granddaughter of Ohokuni Nushi. So then all that means is that the Suzano and Amaterasu sides of the family joined. That's the basics, you know, thing behind that. So then in 660 BC, that is when the imperial family began. Emperor Tenmu oh, yeah. asked for a catalog of all of these legends and genealogies, and then they produced the Kojiki. It legitimizes the emperor and the ruling class. It shows a Japan that is powerful and unified. However, at the time that the Kojiki was written, Japan had a long way to go in the powerful and unified department. Also, it's a very uh, native creation story. There's not really any rest of the world. There's not really any other people. It's all pretty linear. That's definitely something interesting about that, where it's all, so it's very Japan-centric. Yes. Some other general things, just about Shinto. There isn't a Sabbath. It's more about festivals held at various times of the year. It's also about a lot of pilgrimages, and pilgrimages uh, particularly to the shrines. Uh, New Year's is one of the most heavily attended uh, kinds of festivals. There are also a lot of weddings that are performed at shrines. It's the place that you go in order, uh, a lot of people go in order to do that. A large part of the Japanese are Shinto. However, a lot may also follow Buddhism. Uh, there's been a sort of symbiosis going on between Shinto and Buddhism for a long time. Buddhism came to Japan in about 500 CE. But many people say, though, that they are not religious. Now, this is in a country that's still pretty different, and probably here more people would say they're religious, except probably maybe for some younger people in America. But in Japan, it's a little bit different. You can still be Shinto and say that you're not necessarily religious. And so it's just not talked about in the same way as it is here. That makes sense. And, of course, there is no single god, and that single god did not create humans. Humans are part of the rest of creation. So there's no separateness. And there is no central founder of the Shinto religion. There's no John Smith or any of that stuff. Though some sects of 
Shinto, they do have founders that have revelations of their own. There is no Bible. Uh, there are texts, though, that are very important. There is no really recruitment or evangelism, per se, with this religion. And you can sort of tell with that because it doesn't really make sense. Because they're all, you know, with it, when everything's related like this, there is a pretty clear delineation between outsiders and native. And so you don't really see that many people who are converting to Shintoism. And they is just there isn't really that dynamic like there is with, say, the Catholic Church and the missionaries and all that. It's just mm -hmm. very different. It's much more tied to a nation than most other religions are. Shintoism expanded as its own thing a lot more because of the Meiji Restoration. And there was state-sponsored Shinto during the Meiji period uh, up to the end of the Great Pacific War that went a certain direction and ended. There are different sects of Shinto, and there are different types of Shinto as well. There is folk Shinto, and that is uh, following the kami uh, of the actual home. And you can practice Shinto at home. Shrine Shinto is centered among many of the thousands of shrines that are all over Japan. There is also Imperial Household Shinto, and that is performed only by the Imperial family, and there are three Shinto shrines on Imperial grounds. So that is a very specific uh, subsection of Shinto. Ko Shinto is pre-Buddhism Shinto, and that is based a lot in the Ainu and Ryukyuan tradition. So there is also that, because the Ainu and the Ryukyu peoples were there uh, much earlier in uh, Japanese history. So there is a revival that is occurring of that type of Shinto. The Nihongi, or, and also the uh, Nihon Shoki, are the chronicles of Japan. These are all about the origins. These two texts are extremely important, but there are also other texts. There are a lot of stories that have been written about the kami as well, and there are a great many types of kami, and uh, there are also a huge number of beasts or animals, sacred animals, that are in Shinto. And it's uh, all kinds of different creatures, mythical or not. Uh, most of the time, they're mythical, and they have all kinds of different powers. Issei is the most holy sacred shrine in all of Japan. That is where the jewels and the mirror are. The sword is at the shrine of Atsuta, and that is uh, close to the city of Nagoya. Shinto is like one big extended family. Shinto stresses cooperation, harmony, harmony with other people, harmony with nature, and sincerity and gratitude. These are Japanese virtues and values, and honor is about honoring others and being thankful to the kami and thankful to others. There are an astounding 80,000 Shinto shrines in Japan. Amaterasu herself is enshrined in the Issei shrine. The inner sanctum of that shrine is not accessible. The Itsukushima Jinja, and that is the famous Tori gate and shrine that's in the water. And I'm sure everybody's seen that picture. And it's a shrine yes. that is dedicated to the sea deities. And so when you pay respect to that kami, that gives you the possibility of good catches and good sailing. There is also the, the Kitanu Tan Mangu, 
which is dedicated to an actual person. And that is a scholar and a teacher, and he is the god of learning. During exam season, when students want to get good grades and for help in getting good grades, they go to this god and they do a prayer. So there are all kinds of gods that have all kinds of different purposes. When Emperor Meiji came into power in the second half of the 19th century, uh, there was a movement to separate Shinto and Buddhism more in order to assert the individual characteristics of Shinto. The government did this just like the government did state Shinto, and there are varying definitions of what state Shinto even means. However, Shinto has had a long history with Buddhism, and most of the time it has not been an antagonistic relationship. Mostly it has been a, a symbiotic relationship with the two side by side. There are certain sects of Shinto, and they are sects based on Shinto founders, like the Founders Revelations is one type of sect. Uh, another type of Shinto sect is the mountain-worshipping sects, and then there is also uh, shrine pilgrimage groups, and they are their own sect as well. And so this is, Shinto is a very, it's very varied, it's wide, and there is there are all kinds of ways that you can practice it. Regarding the events in the movie, I can give a little bit more information about the specifics of that. After Amaterasu let the storm god uh, Suzano into her kingdom on good faith, he broke his word and he caused destruction, just like in the movie. He infuriated her, she went into the cave, without the sun, and went into darkness. The rest of the heavenly Kami had, Kami had a plan, and then they made it so that she can't desert us. Suzano was banished from heaven after throwing away objects that represented his misdeeds. Then comes the part with uh, Yamato no Orichi, and he presented the sword to Amaterasu to make up for what he did, and it became heavenly regalia. There are, there's part of the story of Izanami and Izanagi that was not in the movie. The part where Suzano is crying, it is because Izanami died giving birth to the fire god, which was Kagutsuchi. Izanagi was so angry that he killed the child and it created dozens of deities. Izanami went to Yomi, the shadowy land of the dead, and Izanagi went after her. He saw how horrible death had made her because she ate the food of the underworld, so she, her body was all rotting and all that stuff. She could not leave uh, the underworld, and she was scared, and he was scared, and ran, and then he, she sent Raijin, the god of lightning, thunder, and storms, after him, and she also sent the ugly women of the underworld after him, and she chased after him herself. When he escaped... He blocked the cave entrance with a boulder so that none of that other stuff could get out. She yelled to him that if he left her, she would kill 1,000 living residents per day. He replied, saying that he would create 1,500 living residents per day. And hence, that is where we get life and death and the separation between life and death. I myself am not Shinto, and so I cannot, oh, I can only comment as an outsider with this, but it is a very interesting subject, and it's something that you should expose yourself to just to learn about some and, and learn about how different cultures are. And, and Shinto is definitely one of those things that you can say that is very unique 
and uh, special. And the film obviously portrays Shinto in a very positive light, and it expresses the Japanese national spirit in that it presents a Yamoto-centric, mythological, and legendary set of history and stories. And that is where uh, the spirit of Japan and the Japanese national spirit is being expressed, is that. Very well said. I mean, I, I was I learned a lot sitting here. Most of this I I hadn't learned yet. So I was I was very happy to sit back and and get a, a lovely education. So thank you. It was really I learned a lot from this. And I'm not I hope I'm, I wasn't trying to necessarily be comprehensive. But if I was going to be comprehensive, this would take forever. But this is a lot of the this would be a lot of the just yeah. basic <laughs> groundwork for uh, the motivations for what what you do and and sort of the the daily aspect of uh, of the religion itself and a good a good jumping off point yeah and it is it's the traditional religion of Japan it's kind of the way to the way to describe it as as is it's very different from religions that evangelize and, and convert and, and that kind of stuff and I can also see how other religions except for Buddhism, maybe don't really mesh with this very well, because you, ha- if you have like a monotheistic system, that's going to be right up against this. And, and the, the two are not going to really be compatible with each other. And you can also sort of see why there was resistance in Japan when Christians came. And it, and it's absolutely yeah, because that religion, that religion is the one that's converting people. Mm-hmm. If you're the power structure, you don't really want to see that get carried away necessarily. No, absolutely not. It's so it's, it's definitely, it's understandable given the context of the time and certainly the context of the religion in question that they would be, you know, they'd see these people coming and saying, no, this is how you need to think or this, or even just existing, you know, and being people that think in the, in the way that they did and considering that a threat to the, you know the the government, the culture, the religion, which were very the much one and the same at the time. Order, yeah. The establishment, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. And just just recently, after I watched this movie for the eighth time, I actually popped in Ben Hur, <laughs> and there there's a part in Ben Hur where where they say, you know, how do you change what's inside somebody's mind? Yes. That that really kind of connects to this, in that it's it's very hard to destroy new ideas and new religions and and not only did the romans uh, look at christianity as a threat initially before the entire mm-hmm. of you know uh, the roman lands were christianized but that that yeah. is uh, they saw it as a threat because it was a monotheistic system against their polytheistic system that was com- completely yeah. different and they viewed compl- it yeah, talk about like different very different virus or whatever you know like you, they didn't want it to get yeah. out of hand it was it was spreading and people were were jumping on the bandwagon you know what i mean it was i mean from their perspective it would have been virus like mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. and so that's just some of the basics about shinto and i hope i didn't leave too many big huge things out but uh it's it's a very interesting religion it, it feels like it's a one big family really and uh, it, it does and if if anything i hope it's it's inspired it's certainly inspired me to to jump in i mean this kind of research is something that i've been trying to do myself uh you know for myself and also for my my writing project where i've been novelizing the godzilla films because 
there's so much of this religion in those films. I mean, it's so much because that religion is Japan. And there's obviously these films are Japanese. So did something, you know, things make a lot more sense. You know what I mean? So I, I, this has been a definitely inspiring jumping off point for me to want to learn more for sure about Shinto. It was, this was definitely a learning curve for me because I really had not done uh, this kind of research before. So it was, <clears throat> it was a bit of a job, a uh, bit of a job for me, but I, I think I, was able to get at least try to get a handle on the basics regarding uh, GDP figures, which we usually do for all of these Kaiju Vision Radio episodes. Yeah, uh, there are no GDP figures available until 1960, so it's going to have a couple more episodes here before uh, there are any GDP figures available. <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the show and for being my co-host for this episode. You can find his work at Godzilla Novelization Project WordPress. Dot com, And he is novelizing all of the Godzilla movies It is uh, that are Japanese, and uh, it's fantastic. I've read some of it. It's really good. Talk about a life's work. You might have a life's work ahead of you with this, <laughs> but it's, I think... I, I like very well could. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, I... I thought about a lot of that stuff before I finally jumped in. And if it takes me the rest of my life to get, you know, even a few of these novels done and I give it my all and I, I put that Japanese national spirit that, you know, you and I have talked about and is one of the cornerstones of this show uh, into it to the best of my ability. I, I hope I can create something that honors these films that have meant so very, very much to me over my entire life and to, you know, give back and, and create something new that people can enjoy. And I mean, they are free, you know, I'm not asking any money for them. And it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been fun to do. And I, you know, this is literally about as just the beginning as you can possibly get on a project this big, but I was, I, yeah, I was, thank you so much for having me come on. I adore this film. And like I said, at the beginning of the show, not a lot of people have seen this. And I hope that, our discussion here in the show has inspired some people to go, go try to find it, go check it out, go find this film, watch this film, you know, not, not just for the special effects or the monster, just go, go watch this, this incredible slice of Japanese culture, go see it. And I was, I, I hope people have been inspired to go check it out. And I'm really happy to have been a part of uh, celebrating this really, really special film. And thank you for pointing it out to me. And I had barely even heard of this movie. Uh, but it was, uh, <laughs> I, I immediately thought, okay, let's just get it and see it. I barely even know what this is. And then I popped it in and I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most different movie of this whole season. I think, uh, even with the, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to have, uh, glad to have helped. And, uh, or maybe a uh, submersion of Japan will be the outlier just cause there's no Kaiju, but <laughs> there's, there you go. That one. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Uh, last war will, will be interesting as well. There's no yeah, Kaiju there's no in that either, either. but, uh. Yeah. I would like to dedicate this episode to Toshiro Mifune. What an unforgettable and great actor. He left an indelible mark on, on a classic Japanese cinema and on Japanese pop culture. He is beloved in America, mostly known for the fantastic Kurosawa films that he was in, which are just absolutely legendary. And so thank you to him for all of his great work. Well said. The the man, the myth, the legend. Um, I, I I dearly wish I'd gotten to meet him. Talk about a powerhouse yeah. of acting, raw talent, uh, a really a blessing I think to film 
in general. Absolutely a legend. The next episode of this podcast will be 1959's Battle in Outer Space, which was supposed to be uh, a, a sequel to The Mysterians, and it ended up getting turned into something a little bit different uh, because a lot of the actors weren't available. I sort of wonder if that's because of this movie. You know, that's because <laughs> they now that, they were now that I think of it, it's the same month. Um, it's pretty darn close. I mean, all of the major players from The Mysterians, Hirata and. Uh-huh. Uh, like if you look at them all, they were all in the Mysterians, and most of them weren't in Battle in Outer Space. Right. It's so kind of wondering. <laughs> and of course, we. It's hear, a good. I think it's a good point you yeah, made we, there. We kept, we kept hearing about how this uh, movie took all the actors, and it's like, well, yeah, kind of did. So I think maybe you didn't this take Yoshio Suchi out. Were uh, being produced virtually side by side, very close together. They came out the same year, and. It's amazing that one didn't really seem to affect the other that bad. I mean, when, uh, you know, we get to that episode, that'll be something fun to talk about. But like the the amount of professionalism in the special effects in that film are astounding. The music is amazing. And the effects and music were done by the same person, the same two guys that did it for all the films, but definitely for for the three treasures all within the same year. And it's all incredibly high quality. Yeah, so and this was it'll be interesting in, comparing yeah, them. And this was the period in Japanese cinema where they were just knocking out these films, like one after the other 1964. They were, yeah. They this is when they Kaiju hit the ground running one year. Oh yeah. Crazy. I'd like to send a shout out to our patron, Sean stiff. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it. It is, gives you the inside track to what's really going on with the show. You get to message me personally and ask me anything. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherschel. And I'm Daniel DeManna. And this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.